Good evening. Let's call to order the Sustainability Commission meeting of February 20th, 2024 at 7 p.m. The city strongly denounces hate speech and does not tolerate disruptive behavior in our meetings. Sunnyvale prides itself on the rich diversity of our residents. We are committed to creating a culture of belonging where members of our diverse community feel included, safe, and respected. Before we get started, I'd like to remind sustainability commissioners of some procedural items for this meeting. During the meeting, remote participants will remain muted when not speaking. If remote participants have a question or comment, please use the raise hand feature. Speakers will be called upon to speak one at a time. Members of the public may participate in person, online, or by telephone to provide public comment. Please submit a speaker card to Ms. Raby in person or use the raise hand feature online to request a speak and that is star nine on a telephone. Location and teleconference meeting details are available on the meeting agenda. Captions are available to viewers accessing this meeting via Zoom. Captions can be displayed or hidden using the live transcript button. Comments on matters that are not on the agenda must be submitted prior to the time I call the item for oral communications. Comments on agenda items must be submitted prior to the time I close the public hearing on the agenda item. Speakers are requested to keep their comments to no more than three minutes and time limits will be strictly enforced. Guidelines are posted on the city's website and on the meeting agenda. And now, please join me in the salute to the flag. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Ms. Raby, may we please have the roll call? Commissioner McWanna. Commissioner Besser. Commissioner Wickham, absent. Vice Chair Veach. Here. Commissioner Pistone. Here. Chair Coons. Here. And Commissioner Navhan. And Councilmember Din is absent. Thank you. And uh, Commissioner Wickham is uh, excused under uh, general leave, or sorry, personal leave. I understand that she's likely to uh, dial in remotely. So one editorial comment, we'll have to figure out how to make it flow well to unmute people as they, they try to say here. Yeah. All right, so with that, uh, now it is time for oral communications. Members of the public will now have an opportunity to address the Sustainability Commission on topics that are not listed on tonight's agenda. This section is limited to 15 minutes and may be extended or continued after the public hearings and general business section of the agenda. Individuals are limited to one appearance with a maximum of up to three minutes per speaker. A reminder to the public, please submit a speaker card to Ms. Raby, raise your digital hand now, or dial star nine on a telephone if you wish to address the Sustainability Commission. 
I will call on members of the public participating in person first. Then Ms. Raby will ask remote participants to unmute their microphone when it is their turn to address the Sustainability Commission. Again, speakers will have three minutes to speak, and for members who are in person, we will have a timer displayed for you. Uh, is anyone interested in uh, speaking under oral communications in person? Do we have any speaker cards? We don't? Okay. Uh, and uh, do we have any uh, remote uh, speakers? Yes, we do. We have two. So, Andrea Wald, you are unmuted and have three minutes to address the commission. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, uh, good evening. I'll make this speech very brief. My name is Andrea Wald. I'm a member of Community for Natural Place Surfaces. Our group has been tirelessly trying to educate the public on the harms of artificial turf. We worked very hard to get City Council to vote for natural grass for Lakewood Park Project, and we are continuing to work with them and city staff to find the best natural grass solution. I'm sure you all know by now that our goal regarding Sunnyvale is to get the City Council to ban it for all city property and for residential use. I'm calling in this evening simply to thank all the Sustainability Committee members for their unwavering support of our efforts and for all the work that went into study issue ESD 2401. Through your efforts and those of our group and community members who support us, we are extremely pleased that it was ranked number one in its category at the recent study ranking session. It is our hope that it does get funded and that can be completed in the near term before all of Sunnyvale is covered in plastic. We believe the study will provide substantiated evidence that AT has no place in Sunnyvale and the council will come to the same conclusion and finally ban it. Thanks again for your support. Keep up the good work. The majority of people in Sunnyvale have no idea how much you all care about our future and the future of this planet. Thank you. Thank you. I believe we have another remote speaker. Yes, we do. Crystal Wickham, you are unmuted and have three minutes to address the commission. Hello, fellow commissioners, it's Crystal Wickham. I'm sorry I can't be there today in person. Um, but I am online and I'm uh, listening and uh, looking forward to tonight's meeting. And I wanted to make just an announcement that um, that I also listened into the study and budget issues workshop last Thursday, and um, you know heard all of the deliberations that council council did on both the study issues and the budget issues. And I encourage um, commissioners to uh, listen into that. I, it was a full day, so you can fast forward <laughs> to the good parts, um, but you'll find that uh, the council highly um, ranked are the two study issues that were in um, ESD. So that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other remote speakers? No, there are not. Thank you. Uh, with that, I will go ahead and close oral communications. Our first item on the agenda is item 24-0370, which is an annual update from Silicon Valley Clean Energy staff on their programs. And I believe we have a staff presentation. 
Good evening, commissioners. My name is Nepore Harmath. I'm the manager of community decarbonization programs at Silicon Valley Clean Energy. Very excited to be here tonight. Uh, and I'm here with my colleague, Zoe Elizabeth. She's our deputy director of decarbonization programs and policy. And so we wanted to share with you a little bit of an overview of SVC's goal and mission, since I recognize that some of the commissioners may be relatively new here. Um, and then we want to touch upon kind of the major areas of our work that have the closest connection to what the city's sustainability uh, and climate action goals are. Next slide, please. Great. So our agenda for tonight is we'll cover SBC's mission and decarbonization efforts. Um, Zoe's going to talk about our uh, the current decarbonization or electrification landscape. Uh, and then talk about also some of the policy initiatives that her team leads. And then I'll round it off with a presentation of some of the programs that Silicon Valley Clean Energy runs. And Thanks. We can move one more one more ahead, please. So, as you may know from this from your own city's emissions inventory, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Most of our most of our emissions here in Santa Clara County come from two primary sources. Uh, Fifty percent or so countywide come from cars or other types of vehicular transport. Uh, and about 40% come from buildings. And most of that 40% is currently coming from the use of natural gas within built, excuse me, within buildings, both residential and non-residential, um, because most of our electricity is provided by clean uh, SVCE and it's clean electricity. So our work at SVC is primarily to continue to serve that clean electricity to your community, but also to help address these two main sources of greenhouse gas emissions in our county. Next slide, please. And so I, I threw in a fun fact here for those of you who may not have been on the commission too long, but the idea for Silicon Valley Clean Energy actually originated out of a Sunnyvale Sustainability Commission study issue, uh, ESD 1402, back in 2014. And the study issue was to explore a community choice aggregation program, which over a few years um, led uh, to feasibility studies and four founding members in Santa Clara County eventually formed a joint powers authority that gave rise to Silicon Valley Clean Energy. Um, and so SVCE provides uh, clean carbon-free electricity to our communities uh, since 2016. We have made significant impacts across the county. Um, you can see here, there's a little bit of a snapshot of our impacts within Sunnyvale. We have offered more than $5 million, uh, $5 million in on-bill savings for customers, um, more than $293,000 in cash payments for those customers who are generating surplus solar energy. And we've helped thousands, tens of thousands of businesses and offered more than 323,000 um, in rebates claimed by Sunnyvale residents for making electrification upgrades in their homes. 
Um, there are other impacts too uh, that are in the report that's linked on the slide. You're welcome to look at it later. It's on our website. Um, one thing I wanted to call out is that we have made significant investments and continue to have significant investment in both policy, local policy development efforts and programs in uh, your community as well as other neighboring communities. And our goal here is to really drive down carbon emissions. Next slide, please. Um, so uh, looking at the most recent draft of the game plan 2028, um, there is a lot of alignment between what the city is trying to accomplish and what SVC's objectives and initiatives are. And this is just a, an example of some of the moves that I pulled out from that report. They're not worded the exact same way, my apologies to staff, but it just gives you a sense of how closely aligned we are and how we're working towards the same objectives. So that I will turn it over to Zoe to talk a little bit about what the landscape looks like for decarbonization right now. Okay, great, go to the next slide. All right, so um, first we wanna stop. One of the big successful initiatives that um, our region really helped to launch in the last few years was a move towards pollution-free new construction. And Sunnyvale was one of the leaders adopting an all electric reach code um, two building cycles in a row, um, which was a lot of work to do, took a lot of kind of communication, but we really want to just drive home the, the um, GHG and the economic savings benefits um, that this act that this act and then the collective acts of our jurisdictions has ha have had. So we're estimating that reach codes across our region will lead to about 50,000 homes with heat pump water heating. Um, what that also means is that there's, for all of those new homes that are built, there's zero replacement cost when switching, um, when as, as uh, policies are emerging in the next few years, or that will basically through BACMED and other reasons, uh, we will, there will no longer be the sale of gas appliances. Homes that are built now with gas have a locked in cost, um, even with rebates and other incentives to transition to, um, to electric in the future. So these reach codes basically protect those homeowners out of those electric, those cost savings. Across the region, over $85 million in cost savings at the time of construction, um, as well as bill savings now. So we haven't been able to update this slide since we recently have calculated that there's about 20 to $30 a month in bill savings for all electric homes. So savings at the time of construction and ongoing bill impacts. And then I think this is really important is that across the region, again, there's gonna be 10,000 more, family, more families with access to reliable home EV charging. So this is a really a huge, huge um, impact that the actions of our city council members across the region led to. Okay, next slide, please. However, with great change um, also means that there's bumps along the road. And so we do want to kind of touch briefly, and I'm happy to kind of answer questions that folks have, that um, people are probably aware that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals recently ruled against the city of Berkeley's gas ban, which was kind of the kickoff of the reach codes movement. And the decision really limits the ability of local governments to regulate energy use 
And um, because of this, we've been working with city attorneys and with our board of directors to basically kind of share information and then recommending that each city attorney review their particular reach code and make a decision on how to proceed going forward. Um, and we have those resources available. Uh, next slide. All right, and now I'm gonna do like a sky high um, kind of sweep across just kind of some big picture things that are going around in building electrification and then in um, e e uh, transportation electrification. Um, so first, some of the um, challenges in front of us is that as I just mentioned, right, this Ninth Circuit decision, bunch of momentum was built and now it's time to kind of think about how we can modernize codes or adapt codes in response or just in general, how to proceed. Uh, we also see that what we're calling the potential for a permit tsunami. You can call this a headwind or a tailwind, I suppose, depending on how you're looking at it. But uh, with the BACMEDS rule that will um, limit the sale of gas appliances beginning in 2027, we see that there could be as much as a hundredfold increase in permits for uh, water heaters, for example. And so this is one of the reasons that SVCE is really investing in um, permit modernization to help cities get ready. We also know that across the country and across California, there continues to be gas industry opposition, both in terms of lawsuits, but also in communication um, efforts. And often that happens locally. So I think it's important for cities to understand that that is happening. And then we also know with like any kind of new technology <clears throat> that there's uh, individuals need to learn more and kind of better understand. There's still perception that there is that electrification actually is actually more complicated than it, it really is. Um, and then also I mentioned before that although electric homes are cheaper to operate, still the ongoing increase in electric bills um, makes it one hard to communicate the benefits of electric construction, but also continues to eat away at the kind of the, the bread and butter benefits of electrification. We can't deny that's a real challenge. And the next slide, please. Um, but also uh, tailwinds, right? The momentum for change continues. And so we mentioned reach codes. We have seen the adoption of these reach codes now has really led to a market shift. And we've even spoken with um, developers in different cities that say, hey, you know, I might have not been pro-electrification before, but this is clearly the direction that things are going. And um, we don't, aren't seeing a lot of projects come in uh, mixed fuel because the industry is really shifting in this way. Um, BACMED has adopted rules that will accelerate building electrification, um, which are phasing out the sale of gas appliances beginning in 2027. Um, this also means that cities need to begin preparing now and our team is available to help kind of with permit modernization but also policies that can really slowly bend and help to accelerate that curve in a sensible way. Support and subsidies are at an all-time high um, in uh, every region in the Bay Area. It is um, cost on cost parity to switch to electric for, for water heating. And in SVCE territory, um, low-income folks can often get a heat pump water heater for free. 
Uh, we see high demand in the fantastic programs that Nippur's team is running, um, continuing to kind of even outpace our expectations. And then I'll just simply say that more and more technical solutions are coming up every day in terms of new technologies available, but also just understandings of how to electrify more simply. Uh, next slide. All right, great. And I actually realize this is backwards, but I'm just gonna, I'll speak to it in the, in the, the proper way. I'll say that um, on the bottom row, the headwinds. So we hear many reports locally and across the state that um, EV charging is, that has been installed in the last several years are facing maintenance and reliability issues that are difficult for owners and operators, particularly local governments to grapple with and kind of deal with as EV drivers. The rate increases that um, are coming down eat away at the cost benefit of EV ownership for families. Um, we have found in our own programs that multifamily installations, particularly at older and smaller and more affordable um, properties is taking longer and costing more than projected. Um, and then we also are reading stories in the news that the EV charging companies are um, slower to earn a profit than had been anticipated, which I think eats into some of these issues around reliability and cost affordability. On the other hand, um, EV sales have increased um, about 400% since 2019. During that same time period, we're seeing ICE vehicle sales go down. There's now more than 40 EV uh, models available. And even with the rate increases, driving an EV still remains the most economical choice, especially for folks that own their own homes and live in a single family home. Next slide, please. All right, so I'm gonna very quickly go through a couple of um, the policy and government initiatives. So I, we discussed in the beginning how we've made huge strides in the area of new construction. But of course, the majority of buildings that will be here in, in 30, 40, 50 years have already been built today. And the majority of emissions come from existing buildings. And so the question is, how can we smoothly and sensibly ramp up this, this transition? Um, and the answer for us at SBCE, or one of the answers, is through local, sensible local policies and modernized permitting. I mentioned before the tsunami of permits. Uh, as many as 4,000 more permits could come into Sunnyvale. Um, beginning in 2027. Next slide, please. Uh, the good news is that sensible policies can help owners prepare, help them to ready, get their homes and businesses ready. Um, at times, it makes sense when you're already doing projects or other big remodels, making sure that their wiring is there, making sure that if you have an opportunity to electrify when it is cost effective, that the city is informing you and that you're able to do that. And that can help us move from where we are now of hundreds of installations to thousands of installations and really begin that market acceleration with um, more ease. Next slide. Um, and finally, in addition to the policies that um, permitting, we just wanted to kind of highlight that we have uh, around $10 million already in programs that specifically support local member agency action and resilience. And we just, our board just committed an additional $10 million that we will be um, planning and re getting ready to roll out in the next coming months. 
And with that, I will turn it back to you, Nipur. Thanks, Zoe. So as you heard from, from Zoe, policy is a key lever that we have to really advance decarbonization. Um, and programs is something that SVCE uses to really bolster that policy. Next slide, please. When we're thinking about greenhouse gas emissions sources, we're not often thinking about where those emissions are coming from, um, even within our buildings and cars, and what kind of scale we're really talking about. So you saw the kind of really powerful graphic that Zoe showed, Zoe showed earlier with how the water heater adoption has to ramp up uh, significantly in order to uh, achieve the goals that we're trying to achieve for climate change. And, but this slide really gives you a sense for how many of each type of appliance um, still exists that uses natural gas or what how many vehicles exist that still use gasoline and are producing greenhouse gas emissions. And that's what we are really trying hard to design our programs to help those replacements so that we can shift all of those appliances to electricity and all of those vehicles to electric vehicles um, and, and help dive down those emissions. So our estimate is that there's about um, 1.1 million machines that we have to replace. And those are contributing to about 78% of the greenhouse gas emissions in our service territory. It's not specific to Sunnyvale. This is all of the county that um, except San Jose, uh, Palo Alto and Santa Clara. Next slide, please. Um, we know that at, even at the significant levels of investment that we have made in our service territory, we don't have the ability to get to scale with that level of funding. We need significant outside investment as well to really help turn over all of those appliances. So our goal here with the programs that we run at SVCE is to demonstrate which types of programs can be most effective um, and can cost effectively help customers or residents in your communities or businesses in your communities electrify and keep driving down those carbon emissions. So our, our objective here is not to replace every single water heater that, that needs to be replaced and switch it over to a heat pump water heater, but really to do as many as we can, learn as many lessons as we can and help kind of leverage those lessons to, to uh, guide the, the state and other, other regional entities in scaling these programs up to a much greater scale and having a broader impact. Next slide. Um, so the next couple of slides here are just um, a kind of a snapshot of all of our customer programs. Um, both on the transportation electrification side, as well as on the building electrification side. I won't walk through every one of these, but they're definitely gonna be available for reference um, afterward, um, but I'll call out a few of them as we go along. Um, so for on the transportation electrification um, space, we have had programs that provide technical assistance to customers. This includes businesses, um, local governments, multifamily properties to help identify what their needs are for electric vehicle infrastructure. Um, and we actually provide resources for these entities to go out and design 
um, what, where they want to put in their chargers, figure out what kind of electrical support they need, uh, figure out what their engineering design is going to look like, um, and then apply for incentives to get those chargers in the ground. We also provide several programs that actually provide those incentives themselves. So there are incentives that are available, again, at the state level, uh, from regional agencies, um, and then from SVCE. And so we provide these to help install both DC fast chargers as well as level two and level one um, chargers. <clears throat> and there are various flavors of these that are represented on the current slide. Um, and then we also have uh, some resources that we have invested this year or last year in fleet electrification planning. And so we are offering those to some of our um, municipal agencies as well as nonprofits and small businesses to help plan for the longer term goal for how to electrify their fleets. Um, lastly, we have um, an app called GridShift, which helps residential customers, mostly in single family homes, um, figure out when when it's best to charge their electric vehicle. And when it, what I mean by best is when is energy the cleanest and also the cheapest? Um, so the app kind of figures out the right time of when the grid is cleanest and when um, power is cheapest and charges your vehicle according to that uh, without you having to think about what it's costing you. Next slide, please. On the building electrification side, our big flagship program is the Future Fit Homes program. We recently just uh, added funds to this program. This is a $7 million incentive program for residential customers that includes uh, single family as well as small multifamily customers up to um, that, are, that live in buildings up to four units. Um, and this is for replacing your water heater or your HVAC system with, uh, with heat pumps, um, as well as for pre-wiring for up to four future electrical circuits. So if you are already undergoing a replacement for one of those two appliances I just mentioned, and you also want to prepare your home for future electrification, you can do that with some additional um, rebates from SVCE. Um, and this does include a panel upgrade as uh, incentive as well, if that is needed, but we are finding that it is possible for many homes to continue to electrify within the current panel capacity that they already have. Um, we have a similar version of this program that's also offered to small and medium businesses, and that's our Future Fit, Future Fit Businesses program. Um, in addition, we realize that not all customers uh, necessarily understand what it takes to electrify or know where to start their journey or, or if they even understand how many different types of rebates there, there are and how you can stack them one on top of the other to kind of maximize those incentives. And so we have uh, recently rolled out a service that went live in December. It's called the Go Electric Advisor. Um, and this is a phone or web service for customers to basically get one-on-one -on -one support for their specific projects or their specific questions. And this could span the gamut from folks that really don't know what electrification is and are just learning a little bit more to folks who know they're trying to get a rebate for something but don't know how to go about it, um, or to those who have already made several electrification upgrades and they want to develop a more long-term electrification plan. Um, we are also launching here, you'll see in the orange box, our 
um, CHAMP program, which is the Clean and Healthy Affordable Multifamily Properties Program. This is gonna be one of our first multifamily electrification programs. Um, and it dedicates $12.5 million to electrify deed-restricted affordable properties completely. And that includes the installation of um, EV infrastructure in the parking lots or garages. Um, and then SVC is also offering an e-elect rate, which is an electric only rate for customers who have electrified, who have at least one electric appliance. Um, and, and by that, it's usually a furnace or a water heater. Um, and they can get this higher discount on um, discount rate that essentially optimizes their bill for having more electric appliances than gas. Next slide, please. I also wanted to preview some of the newer program ideas that are still under consideration. These are not set in stone yet and are not funded, but um, we will be looking to take a proposal for funding these to our board within the next month here. Um, and so some of these are going to be a single family installation program, which basically will offer SVCE employed contractors for single family customers to call in and engage uh, with them rather than having to go out and find your own contractor. Um, and there will be a set of transparent pricing that is available to um, through these contractors that SVC provides. So we're hoping to make the process a lot simpler and more transparent and easier for customers to navigate. Along with that, we're also hoping to run a pilot for neighborhood electrification where we target maybe one block or one um, contiguous area of homes to see if all of them can move towards electrification at the same time. Um, and this really helps us understand what the impacts might be on the gas infrastructure that's going to be left behind uh, and not used anymore. Um, we are also looking at rebates for e-bikes and portable heat pumps, as well as electric vehicles. And all of those will be uh, income qualified for lower income residents. Uh, we are also investing significantly in workforce development efforts. Uh, what, the, what, the, what that program will look like is still being kind of shaped right now. Um, and then there are member agency grants that Zoe mentioned earlier, which is the $10 million that SVC is committed to um, providing to uh, cities like Sunnyvale and its neighbors. Next slide, please. So we really appreciate the time that your commission has spent in listening to us tonight. Uh, and. We are open to questions. We, we encourage you to learn more about our policies and programs on our website. Um, definitely help promote decarbonization and our existing programs and encourage your friends and neighbors to take advantage of those uh, while they're still around. Um, and of course, support your city staff. Um, Sunnyvale has an amazing team and a very proactive council in advancing decarbonization policy and uh, programs, as well as the needed resources to move those forward. So we'll stop there and turn it over to the commission to ask us any questions you have. Thank you. Thank you very much for that informative presentation. And uh, for uh, commissioners who haven't been uh, around quite as long, and Nipur used to be our staff liaison. So she's an old friend and great to see her.
All right. So, commissioners, uh, if you have questions, uh, please raise your hands. I saw furious note taking uh, happening to my left and right. So, don't be shy. Commissioner Pistone. Fine. I guess I'll start. Um, thank you very much for the presentation. It was super great and awesome and good to know about all this stuff. Um, I was curious a little bit more if you could talk about the workforce development um, efforts that you're doing and how those would be developed and where it would be reached out to or what, what you're thinking there. Um, yeah, I guess I'll start with that. Sure. Um, it's it's funny you ask about that because I, I I would say that that's probably the idea that's under the most uh, you know it's still very amorphous right now and we're still trying to figure out what we can do in that space. I will say our greater objective here is of course creating a pipeline of contractors that we want to have trained and available as the market demand for electrification increases as these policies are pushing electrification forward as customers become more and more aware of not only the incentives that are out there but the benefits of electrification right we want the, the contractor support to scale with all of that um, and so we already run a contractor training program and we have been doing that for the last um, two or three years now um, but this is really starting to uh, recruit more contractors uh, recruit more um, residents um, into a contractor program and have them ready for, to support our electrification needs. I'll let Zoe add anything if there if you have anything to add there, Zoe. Yeah, I think we've really covered it. Nepal. I'll say that we are kind of participating in larger state and regional discussions around the need for workforce development and workforce matching. There's something called the high roads. Um, training partnership and other um, efforts. And so we will be planning this program should our board approve it in the coming months. Um, and any of you that are interested in providing input or hearing more, we would um, love your, your thoughts on what would be beneficial for our region. Yeah, I guess this is me saying that sounds like a great idea and I would support it. Um, and also just like, the, I, I've seen a lot about like, you know, we, we don't have the workforce to get all of the electrification done that we need to get done. And at the same time, I know there are a lot of um, lower income members of the community, like kids in under-resourced schools who, if there are resources to put towards some job training program, that seems like it would be amazing if we could sort of do two things together. Um, so, yay. Um, my next question was the e-electric rate that, so that's your electricity rate would be lower if you're only, um, electric. Is that just for single family or would it also be for multifamily and how would that work? So that rate is currently available, uh, both to single family and multifamily. Um, it's actually a PG&E offering. So PG&E offers an electric preferred uh, rate and what SVCE's e-elect rate does it it further discounts PG&E's offering. So what we do is we actually um, might we charge you a little bit more during peak times than PG&E would, we, but we discount deeper during the off-peak time. And so your net um, 
impact on your bill is actually a net is often a net reduction. And that's Zoe mentioned earlier, it's a 20 to $30 savings per month. Is that right, Zoe? Yeah. So on, on from a study that was done of customers who are on this rate. This was the first time I'd heard of it. So I would like we to did just finish the study recently. So cool. great. Good. Then maybe I wasn't maybe it wasn't that I wasn't paying attention. Um, so my last question, um, when we were talking about EV tailwinds, um, and this might be beyond what you can really do, but I've heard things so like the, the state has done some like right to repair stuff, but I think that's just for like consumer electronics. But I've heard like one of one of the issues that I've heard anecdotally is a lot of EVs, once they're out of warranty, then you're kind of in problems if something goes wrong. So there's there's not it is it is risky to have an EV and than to resell it. I, I I didn't know if you could say anything more. Like, is that is that something people are worried about, or is this just something that specific people who I know encountered, and and it was a problem for them? Like, is is the reliability you know, long term? If I can answer in the portfolio Prius, it's not something that I've heard of recently. I mean, I do recall with like early Prius models, even like in the FEVs, that there was more battery degradation. And so there is kind of some concerns there. And I think even in the early um, years of the Nissan Leaf, um, but I have not heard it recently, which doesn't mean that it's not true. It's just not something that we hear about often. Um, and we, we have, I have heard some anecdotes on the other side, at least with some of the EV companies of, of cars lasting a really long time. So it sounds like it's actually a really good thing for us to investigate, get some better data on understanding. Yeah, because like the, the best cars are the ones that are already EVs and already on the road. And mm -hmm. I think the, the less turnover in new things that we can have would be good. Um, and then EVs are great, but I really want buses. Are are you working with any local transit agencies to to reduce the vehicle miles traveled in the internal combustion engine cars that way? And I think that's my last question. Are not at the moment. You know, this is something that that comes up um, on kind of a different basis, and just we'll see our area of expertise and kind of our our sphere of influence is really is on the switching out of combustion to electrification. So we could imagine a future where maybe we partner with a transit agency to help them electrify buses. Um, but VMT reductions in particular are just something that's um, like many of the wonderful pieces of decarbonization are kind of out of our sphere of direct influence. Thank you. Vice Chair Beach. Sorry about that. Thank you. Hi, Zoe. Hi, Nipur. Thank you so much for that presentation. I have a couple questions for you. And going back, uh, Nipur, to your early part of the presentation, where you had mentioned that there was about $323,000 in rebates for uh, Sunnyvale customers. Sorry, I don't remember what slide that was on. But I had a couple questions just about this one. One I was wondering, was that in 2023, that number? Or is that like in the total life of um, SVCE rebates in Sunnyvale? Two, I was wondering, 
do we know who those customers are? So for example, are they low income, moderate income, high income? Do we have any sense of who those customers are? And then my third thought was, um, let me let me start with there. Those are the two questions I can pass over to you. Oh, the um, other, are they yeah. single family or multifamily? That was the third. Were those all on slide five? I think it's, I think it's, yeah, it's slide five. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think the 322,000 is uh, specific to 2023. Um, it is in the annual community impact report for Sunnyvale that just got published. So that's on SVC's website. Um, and then uh, re with regard as to who the customers are, yes, we definitely track this on the back end as much as we can. Um, we have rebates that are dedicated to customers who are on the care in the care fairer program. So they are they tend to be customers who are lower income. Um, and we do track, and I believe, um, at least from our Future Fit Homes program, about five percent of our of our uptake in that program has been um, in that group, in the CareFair customer group, and so it's not a significant portion of the uptake. Um, I think incentives are still very much being applied to by folks who probably have some reasonable ability to afford the appliances that they are trying to upgrade. Um, we do have carve-outs for lower-income customers, and so we offer deeper incentives for those customers, but uh, we just haven't had that much uptake. Um, and so we are starting to, to find more kind of creative ways to engage with lower-income groups, um, and, and we're doing a lot more stakeholder engagement to try and get our programs into their hands. And in addition, we really think that offering the direct install program that I mentioned earlier, where SVC directly engages contractors, and then th those contractors are available to our community members to hire, um, providing that type of service is going to be um, key and pivotal for lower income customers because it will be available at no cost to low income customers. It will be available for a cost share to market rate customers. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the primary way that we think we can reach that group. Um, and then most of the rebates that have rebate programs for building electrification that we have been running are for single family or multifamily homes up to four units. So we haven't run a program for large multifamily buildings uh, on the building electrification side. Um, again, our approach there right now is embarking on a direct installation program for large multifamily buildings. On the EVI side, we have been running programs for large multifamily buildings because they're the ones who um, can install level one and level two chargers for their residents to charge their vehicles at. Whereas in single family homes, it's generally a reasonably quick and easy upgrade. Um, so we don't provide any incentives for that at the moment. Thank you, Nupur. Oh, go ahead, Zoe. 
Yeah, I just wanted to kind of tee off of that too, of thinking, because we get this question, we get this question a lot. And the truth is, just as Napoor said, that right now it's it's a really small niche of folks that are making this decision. But I think we can also take some comfort in that, that these are new technologies, right? This new electrification rate just came out last January that helps to ensure that there's bill savings for all folks, right? And we think it's really important that those that um, were really environmentally minded and had the resources in terms of time and kind of a higher risk tolerance to be those that were kind of the earliest adopters in this curve. And now that we have rates and kind of more incentives and the technologies have been really tested, we're expanding programs into the um, you know, care fair, but also just regular folks, like, you know, kind of everybody. And this is the opportunity I think that we can scale. And so Nepur mentioned some of the programs. We also have um, some new really deep engagement programs so that we can work hand in hand with communities to develop um, the incentive types and the kind of program types that will, will meet a broader set of needs. Thank you, Nepur. Thank you, Zoe. I, I would like just to add a comment that uh, I appreciate all of the the kind of the overview of the different, you know, residents and customers who are trying to be able to promote and engage in these rebates and programs. I wanted just to kind of echo that the moderate income demographic is one that is like a really hard nut, which I know you all know to crack, but how can we do a little bit more with serving that? Because there's really great programs for our low income care fair customers, you know, folks who can afford it in Sunnyvale to electrify, they're going to do it. But like, what's the strategy for reaching that moderate income? So um, I'll just leave you with that comment and I'll go over just maybe one or two other quick questions, but thank you for those responses. Um, one question I did have, because I saw that we have, I believe, our environmental innovations team members joining us potentially tonight. I think I saw Lawrence on the line. So he made, seeing his face made me think that um, uh, for the Future Bit Fit business program, I was just wondering if you guys are connecting with the county's green business program and partnering in some type of way to be able to, you know, help these, your, there's, parts of the program that are helping, you know, these customers and businesses electrify and, you know, get their businesses being more, you know, sustainability and resilient. But I was just wondering if we're helping to make those connections to that county's green business program. I'm just thinking there's like a natural partnership there. So that way, if, if businesses are getting, um, going electric or, you know, making those improvements, they can kind of get recognized and provide additional support um, to help them make further sustainability resilient changes. I don't know off the top of my head that we have done that, but I'll look into that and thank you for that suggestion. We'll definitely explore that if we haven't already. Awesome, thank you. And I know others have questions, so I'll leave you with one other question. And this is kind of building upon Commissioner Pistone's question earlier about um, the workforce development. And I was um, I was interested to see that you all are going in like that contractor, uh, uh, you know, having a, a, a list of contractors to be able to, um, for customers, residents to be able to work with. And I was wondering, um, 
one, is that program going to be something similar maybe to like the Bay Run Home Plus program right now where you, in order to qualify for residents, you need to work with those participating contractors? So that's question one. And then question two is if you're going to have like a smaller niche or, you know, contractors that you're working with, um, what is the, like, where's the priority going to be given? So I was just thinking like, you know, in some of the experience in the work that I do is, you know, how do we get those contractors who are bilingual, small businesses, minority or women known? So I'm just wanting to see like if we're going to be pivoting or if there's a strategy to work with a small subset of contractors, how can we have an equitable bench of contractors who can help serve our very diverse community? Yeah, thanks. Great questions. Oh, go ahead, Zoe. Uh, yeah, great questions. And I guess I'll just say too, we're, this is one where we're really still figuring out. I don't actually think that we're imagining kind of having a preferred contractor program at this point. It's more like we're thinking of, again, this is we're broad, right? So just <laughs> there were the ideas that we're contemplating right now, partnerships with community colleges, partner, partnerships with um, other kind of high roads training programs. We think a lot about Emerald City's work in this area, um, which is exactly what, uh, what you're talking about of how we kind of get a really broad broad representation um, in, into those trades. So super, super important. Um, but yeah, just to clarify, at this point, we're probably not going to do exactly the um, kind of preferred contractor route. Yeah, and I'll just add, I think, I think Zoe, um, Commissioner Veach was also potentially asking about the single family direct install program. And so for that program, Yes, there will be a set of dedicated contractors that SVCE hires um, and who are available to our customer base. Um, we are going to be working through a central program operator. So there'll be a, a kind of a third party that we contract out to and they will be managing the individual contractors on the ground. Um, so. Oh, I think you went on mute. Nipur. Yeah, you muted yourself, Nipur. Yeah, sorry. We are considering some of the factors that you mentioned during the selection process, including um, their ability to reach our diverse community, um, as well as if the contractors are local. Um, so we're trying to prioritize some of those metrics. It's, it's, it's hard to prioritize everything because you also want to prioritize cost, right, and affordability. And so, yeah, it's like a delegate balance. But thank you. Your comment is definitely um, on point. Thank you. Commissioner Besser. I'm live, right? Oh, good. Thank you very much for a very, very informative presentation. It made me think of something um, that's actually impacting residents, and maybe you can speak to this, maybe not. Um, you mentioned on one of your slides about the impacts in the permitting process, that there was gonna be significant uptick in permitting process. Can you speak very briefly about what that entails? Is that multiple inspections, pre-inspection, post-inspection? What, what is the impact actually going to be um, in terms of that? Yeah, great question. So this uptick is basically because um, it's our estimate and kind of based on the studies that we've seen, about 95% 
of like for like gas water heaters never come across your permit desk. People just don't get permits for them. However, with heat pump water heaters, they require a bit more sophistication, um, sometimes electric and plumbing. And we're seeing in our, our senses that probably the majority of those will go across per, um, permitting desks, which is why you see that kind of big increase. Some cities require kind of two permits right now for heat pump water heaters. But what we're doing, we've invested um, $3 million to help cities to kind of streamline that program to make sure that it's just as easy to get a permit for a heat pump water heater as it is for a gas water heater. And then also, yes, usually there is um, an app, just one inspection after installation, um, but we wanna work with cities to do things like virtual inspections or also um, kind of create a certified contractor program that would really minimize the need for inspections at 100% of installations overall. So I hope that answers your question, but if not, please feel free to ask me a follow-up. No, that was awesome. Thank you very much. Commissioner Nevin. Thank you very much for the very informative program or talk. Um, I had one quick question about the programs. Where does the funding come from for all these programs? And is there a bill availability to maybe increase some of them in the future as they grow? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll start and Zoe, feel free to add. Um, but yeah, so our funding comes from SVCE's revenues. So it's all funding that is generated from ratepayer funds um, and, and the board allocates a portion of that funding to programs, to our programs fund every year. It's typically about 2% of the overall budget that gets allocated to the programs um, every year. And so over time, over the time that SVC has been in existence, um, that pot of program funding has grown and we've been deploying more and more programs. Uh, we've also hired more staff to deploy some of those programs. Um, and so I think right now our estimated level of, of that program's funding is $116 million. Um, and not all of that is currently live or deployed in our community. Actually, if you go to slide 37, uh, Christina, which is the last slide, Oh, sorry, sorry. I think I might have given you the wrong slide number. It's a slide with a bar graph on it. Uh, sorry, it's 26. 32. Okay. Yeah, one earlier. Thank you. Um, and so you look at the far right bar here, um, that shows you kind of where all of our funds are allocated. This is a little bit out of date. This is from last October and we already have more funding. Um, that bar should look taller, um, more than a hundred thousand, a hundred million dollars at this point. Um, but you can see kind of how that funding is currently distributed into funds that have already been spent via incentives or other type of programs, funds that have been reserved by customers who are all planning to make upgrades and want to um, leverage incentives um, live or available now to customers is basically a program exists that customers can take advantage of. 
Um, and then the top two portions of that bar are funds that have not yet been deployed, but we know we have those. So we're still formulating programs to deploy those into our community. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that. I have one ex one additional question, and it was on the future fit business. Um, mm -hmm. How many fleets do you think we have in the county that would require electrification? My estimation is that most of the fleets in the county, if they're going to electrify, won't have the necessary electrical grid to um, power their fleet. And so I've, I, my assumption is that almost everyone's going to need additional electricity render their site. Uh, in that future fit business, was there cost associated for new circuits or uh, additional circuits to power fleets? Um, so that is for small and medium businesses. I don't know that those businesses would necessarily be the kind that have fleets. So I think that the way that program stands right now, we're thinking like small retail or like small office space. That's what that program would fund, future fit businesses. Um, I think you're absolutely right. We don't have uh, great solutions available readily at this time for charging of and full-scale electrification of fleets. Um, and so some other uh, community choice programs like AVA, Community Energy in East Bay, they're coming up with um, like a hub for charging medium and heavy duty vehicles that could be used by fleet vehicles or others that are transiting through the area. And so there might be some more solutions like that that start to become available. But I, uh, we don't currently have a program that funds, um, I guess, EV infrastructure for large fleets, medium or large fleets. Well, thank you very much. Sure. Commissioner Makwana. Yes, hi, thank you for the presentation. Um, I know there is a rebate for uh, battery storage that I see on your slides, but have you guys looked into a new construction that also implies that you must have solar plus battery storage? Because the past couple of summers, we've had instances where the battery storage has been pushed by even PG&E because they can't support every customer that loses power, et cetera. So is this something that you're looking into with PG&E? So we don't currently have a program for new construction. All of these programs that I shared are really targeting existing buildings um, because for new construction, there's already, you know, we reach codes that require electrification. Um, but we do work closely in general. We do work closely with PG&E. We, we try and leverage uh, kind of opportunities to push for um, better capacity and better interconnection when when there is an opportunity for us to do so. Um, Zoe, do you have anything to add on that? I guess, yeah, I would just say on the on the new construction that the state code does require that they're kind of pre-wired for batteries. Um, we have one jurisdiction, I, I think the city of Mountain View in some instances might have require some kind of level of batteries. I, I don't quote me on that. I remember they were at least considering it. Um, but that's the only um, thing that I've seen it pushing on the new construction side of things. Um, we, we did, we do have a resilience program for member agencies and I wish I had the number of solar plus storage projects, but um, I think probably close to seven at community centers 
um, senior centers, libraries, fire stations that have installed batteries for, for backup, just as you, for the same reasons you mentioned. Thanks. Uh, my point was, you know, the rebates can certainly attract uh, early adopters, but with battery, you can use the uh, savings you get from a storage as almost a rebate. Because if you do any kind of calculation on how, how many years it takes for you to pay for your solar panels, it could range from you know anywhere from five to 15 years. But with storage, uh, you can actually reduce that significantly. I've done that myself. And, in, and you can use that as a way for not just the early adopters, which I presume you have a lot of those coming to your side right now, the folks who uh, actually can't even think of affording solar panel with battery, you can start to actually reap the benefits much sooner. So that might be a good way for you to market that program together. Great, really good insights, thank you. All right, so uh, seeing uh, no other raised hands from the commission, I think it's my turn. Uh, uh, so first off, uh, uh, thank you for the presentation. Uh, very informative as always, and I, I look forward to uh, our presentation from SVCE every single year. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, one uh, editorial comment uh, for uh, my fellow commissioners. Uh, I, I hope you noted that it was a study issue that uh, led to uh, Silicon Valley Clean Energy being created. And uh, what I'll just say to all of you is top that. Seriously, please do. We'd all benefit. All right. Uh, so uh, <laughs> with, with that, um, uh, let's uh, start off on uh, slide six, please. And uh, this was the slide talking about uh, the city's uh, game plan 2028 and uh, overlap uh, you know, between uh, what the city's doing and, and SVCE. Um, so uh, don't know how uh, deeply you guys got into game plan 2028, but my first question is uh, what isn't here that uh, should be uh, from Silicon Valley's clean energy point of view? What, what would you suggest if, if there were any moves uh, that, that need to be here that aren't, uh, what would those be? Um, that's a great question. I will admit, Doug, that I took a, a close, a, a quick look at this, not a close look. Um, obviously, have some uh, history here as well with this, uh, with the former game plan. But um, yeah, I would say in general, there's a lot of alignment between what the city is already proposing um, and what we are already trying to work with our member agencies to do. Um, there's probably different flavors of some of these moves that you can take. For example, if you are starting to think about, um, you know, an electrification ordinance for existing buildings, there's probably variations of this. And, and I'll defer to Zoe to add anything on that, but you could probably go really aggressive in terms of how your ordinance language is phrased, or you could probably take a softer approach. Um, and so it really depends on kind of what staff's interest is, what the community's interest is, and where your council's leaning. Um, Zoe, did you have anything you wanted to offer, maybe an example or anything like that? Um, yeah, well, I guess I will just say it does talk about the uh, building electrification ordinance, but that permit modernization piece is something that only your city can do and is such a critical action here. So I would just emphasize um, building electrification. and. I would probably also say that um, the important thing 
that we've seen with jurisdictions is actually selecting a few really high impact things and prioritizing them. Um, so that ends up being the most important versus kind of comprehensive list, so. Thank you. Uh, let's see, next, uh, can we please go to slide nine? Uh, and this was uh, with regards to the uh, Berkeley decision. Uh, and this is uh, actually a question uh, uh, for city staff. Um, so here it was uh, suggested that uh, our city attorney should be uh, reviewing the decision and determining if anything needs to be done with our reach code. Uh, do we know if the city attorney has done that? Um, yes, the city attorney and us have been in communication about this. Um, and I don't have anything to share with you right now on that determination. Um, I think we're taking a little bit of a wait and see approach. Um, so I can work with staff to see if they have like a formal response that they would like to update you with. Makes sense. And thank you. Very interested to hear that. All right. Uh, so let's see. Just going through, I think one was already answered. On slide 12, um, it was mentioned that um, particularly uh, installing uh, EV uh, charging infrastructure at multifamily properties uh, is taking a long time and, and, and costing more. Um, based on what you guys have seen to date, uh, do you have a sense of what can be done to streamline multifamily uh, EV charging installations? And uh, is there any role that uh, the city can or should be playing in, in helping make that happen? Yeah, I think based on what we're seeing, it can take, um, we, it's through our rebate programs, we typically allow like a 90 day period um, for installations to occur. And we're seeing in many cases that that 90 days draws on. Um, it really seems like what works for multifamily properties is when they outsource most of the um site design and the installation work to an existing EV, EV charging company, right? Um, so that seems to be the easiest approach, least headache logistically. Um, in terms of kind of getting it done faster, I think that's a nut we are trying to crack for sure. Um, Zoe, do you wanna talk a little bit about SV Tech plans? Um, yeah, I wish we had the solution too. I wish that we knew what could, <laughs> knew what we could be could be done. I mean, some of this is just that construction takes a while, and with old electric systems, it's just hard to do. Um, but what we are doing is we have this group called SV Tech, which brings together kind of public private sector partners across the region, and we're actually doing a round of kind of expert conversation interviews um, on. This is one of the key topics. So we'll be talking to EV charging companies, multifamily property owners, contractors who have installed EVs, so are installed charging at multifamily properties so that we can hopefully get some clear answers. And then when we know them, we will either build design programs and also come back to commissions and other agencies that particularly if there's policy or permitting solutions out there. I'll just add really quickly that another approach in this particular space has been to do direct installs, right? So rather than trying to incentivize this EBI to go in, um, just saying, hey, we have contractors who are available. They can do all of your site design. Can we come in and just install the chargers? Um, but even that 
has proved uh, challenging. A lot of the property managers don't have time or the resources to manage uh, and over, uh, oversee the construction and installation of these chargers. Um, and then a lot of them don't want to deal with the maintenance of those chargers. Um, it's expensive and it, or if they try to do it in-house, it takes time from their facility staff. Thank you. Uh, next, uh, can we go to slide 15, please? Uh, so on this slide, um, there in the 2025 column, uh, you know, I, I see uh, at, a, at a rough level, uh, you know, some different policies called out that, that might help, uh, you know, ramp up, uh, you know, installations of, of water heaters before the, uh, you know, Backman rule kicks in. Um, could I just get a, a little more detail on, uh, you know, what each of those uh, potential policies is? I'm not so much interested in other policy, but, but the uh, electrification at remodel and electrification readiness. Uh, can you talk us through what those are? Yeah, absolutely. So electrification readiness could look like uh, when you change out your water heater or your gas water heater, not requiring folks to go to electric right away, but making sure that they go through some kind of electrification planning process or run pre-wiring um, to that site, or even um, a disclosure about upcoming the upcoming backmed rules so that they can begin to get ready. Um, or it could be similar, this is about water heaters, but it could be something similar in the kitchen when folks are doing the kitchen remodel to make sure that they're pre-wiring and getting things ready um, to be able to swap out to go to move towards an all electric kitchen. So it's just really thinking about that kind of preparation versus forcing people's hands. I think about it as just good common sense. If I'm knocking into my walls, I would want the permitting desk to be saying, hey, make sure you're doing this too, because you're gonna have to do it anyways in a few years. Um, electrification at remodel could take many different flavors, but it could be that kind of thing where you said, oh, hey, uh, we've seen the city of, of Piedmont do something where if, if, if remodel is over a certain square footage threshold or a certain cost that homeowners can kind of um, select from a menu of options um, for greater energy efficiency or um, pollution reduction could look like that or some kind of incentive um, where perhaps um, a homeowner could build a little bit more square footage than they otherwise would be able to during their remodel if they're going to go all electric or um, have some kind of slight changing in height requirements, kind of what's on or off the table for those types of incentives really would vary um, city by city. But we think if there's got to be some sweet spot in cities that would really make the process um, more interesting and intriguing to folks that are remodeling and with not asking kind of too much to push back against against the city the ideas there. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see, next up, uh, we go to slide uh, 22, please. Uh, and this was some of the uh, programs that were under consideration. Thank you. Uh, all right, so uh, one question I had was uh, with regards to, uh, it's specifically phrased as e-bike rebates. Uh, and I was curious, uh, you know, if, if the intention there was to specifically target it on e-bikes or if it was, you know, any form of micromobility, uh, you know, so for example, electric scooters, uh, just a detailed question there. I don't think we know that yet, but I think the general intention was micromobility. Thank you for clarifying. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. Um, 
next up, still on this slide, uh, uh, editorial comment. I, I love the fact that the uh, single family installation program uh, specifically mentions emergency water heater replacement. I, I love the idea that uh, if, if somebody's hot water is out, that uh, when they, you know, give you guys a call, that that uh, you, know, you might be able to just electrify for them uh, in a hurry. Um, I was curious to hear more about um, the uh, neighborhood electrification pilot. Um, so, uh, can can you uh, provide any more details there in terms of you know, do you have like what what the criteria would be for a neighborhood or, or any kind of a, a particular time frame uh, in which uh, you might be launching that? Um. So identifying the criteria would be really actually one of the first steps in the program design. But what I can say is that we're probably thinking um, smaller than you would think of a huge neighborhood. Like we're thinking something like even groups of 12 or so um, homes, We would the idea is to be able to begin electrifying together and see what kind of cost and social communication benefits um, can be driven through electrifying kind of at the at the group level, right? Because a lot of the idea is that over time, we will begin kind of doing this managed transition block by block instead of home by home. Um, but we have kind of have to start at the really the smallest level of just a group of homes. Um, so we're, I can tell you kind of some of the things that we're thinking about is, you know, criteria that has to do with sociodemographics and cost savings. And then we're also thinking about criteria that are much more um, like socially derived in terms of areas where there's a champion in the neighborhood that could help to um, catalyze and kind of serve as a leader for other neighborhoods. I think about like the, the CERT program, emergency responder kind of neighborhood by neighborhood. Could we do something like that um, for electrification? And so my sense is that we'll probably want to try out two or three approaches in a small group of homes um, to start and see what see what sticks. Um, and I think we're looking at launch this summer-ish or end of the year. I'm looking at Nippur because I'll, I'll be overly aggressive on my timeline, probably, probably end of the year. <laughs> yeah, I think single family, the single family program will go live sometime in the summer um, and the neighborhood um, program will leverage a lot of what is already offered in that single family installation program. So uh, next question uh, still on the slide. Uh, so something that I did not see mentioned here uh, that I that I was hoping to to hear mentioned uh, was so if if a lot of the problem has to do with you know a financing problem and you know you you've talked a lot about you know for example in, incentives to to try and and make it so that it's more cost effective for people to electrify. Um, you know one one thing that I was hoping to see here was some discussion of on-bill financing. Uh, and, and this might tie into uh, Vice Chair Veach's question in terms of how do we make it so that in between, you know, the high end and the low end uh, that we have people in the middle who who can't necessarily, uh, you know, afford to, to put out you know, a large amount of cash, uh, but aren't necessarily qualifying for, for you know, income-based assistance. Um, you know, uh, what can be done to, to help uh, you know, finance and, and, and spread out uh, the, the payment so that it's, it's not just a, a big cash outlay in, in one go? Uh, so uh, do you guys have uh, on-bill financing or any other kind of uh, you know, financing program to, to spread out the, 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 the payments uh, for, for homeowners on your radar? Yes, absolutely. So we, um, SVC was actually working with 
the providers of the statewide tech program, and we had submitted a, a proposal for the CPUC to consider a tariffed on-bill financing program. That proposal is still working its way through the, uh, the CPUC process. It's been, been in that process for about a little over a year and a half at this point, but we were commended uh, significantly on the creativity of that proposal. So we're still hoping to launch that tariffed on-build program um, in the future. What we are working on right now, and this is, there was just no room to cram everything onto the slides. So I apologize for not putting it on here, but thank you for bringing it up. We are actually working on an on-build financing program um, still in the very early design phase, but it is intended to target exactly the, the group that you mentioned, um, uh, the moderate, the more moderate income customers who would be paying back uh, the cost of the electrification upgrade over time via, um, via their bill. Um, we would be looking to target a smaller number of customers uh, in a pilot for on-bill financing initially, because we want to make sure that those customers um, would uh, reap some savings from the electrification of their appliances. So it, it would start out as a pilot and then um, eventually scale depending on its success. And I think in terms of time, uh, it might be early next year before we can launch it. Sounds great. All right, uh, so then uh, can we go back to slide 20, please? And this is my last question. All right, uh, so uh, just to set some context, uh, you know, I, I'm in contact uh, with uh, a number of local school districts on various uh, efforts that, that, I, that I'm part of, including, for example, uh, with Sunnyvale School District, I serve on something called the uh, Facilities Bond uh, Oversight Committee, uh, which uh, oversees spending on bonds that the, the school district has issued for facilities. Uh, so uh, if a school district uh, wanted to become zero emission, um, my question is, uh, you know, would they need to engage, you know, what are the programs that they would engage with, uh, and uh, would they need to engage with each of those programs separately, or is there anything that they could do with the SVCE, like to work with a single point of contact who could help them in terms of like doing cost benefit or return on investment type of analyses uh, to make sure that, you know, hey, this is going to make financial sense for you, uh, you know, and help shepherd things along. So, uh, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, typical school district staff, uh, you know, they they're, haven't got a, a wealth of time or a wealth of resources to work with. Uh, but if, if you can make clear to them, you know, without a, a lot of time in, or effort investment, uh, this could really pencil out for you. Uh, I, I think that might make a big difference. Uh, the, the three programs that, that I noted were, uh, let's see, uh, the fleet electrification planning, uh, future fit assist, and then also uh, future fit businesses on the next slide. Uh, so, so what are the programs, and and uh, what can be done uh, if if you don't already have something in place uh, to help uh, you know agencies like that take take up this kind of uh, effort and become zero emission? Yeah. So um, those are all the right programs um, that a school 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 district or school could qualify for. There's also an additional. Um, decarbonization grants program um, that um, 
uh, I believe some of our, it's actually school in Sunnyvale that upgraded its HVAC system. It was Vargas Elementary, I believe. Um, yeah, I told them to email you guys and ask about the grant. Great. Um, so yes, so some of these programs are available for school districts to, or schools to apply for. Um, there isn't anything that we currently have that would be a single point of contact that would help school districts really do some planning around how to best leverage uh, various incentives that might be available. Um, we do do some outreach and engagement with school districts ourselves. And so we are hoping to be able to work with more of them. Um, maybe that's a separate conversation we can have at some point. Uh, if you're able to connect us, we have been working specifically with Sunnyvale School District uh, on a couple of things. Um, but yeah, I think at this point there isn't a centralized program. I think we're just, it, it is, they would have to engage with each of these piecemeal. Thank just you. To double, just to really quickly double click, as um, Napur mentioned, the DCARB demonstration grants, we had them under member agency grants early, rents a community, it's actually for community buildings. And the next round of that $10 million will be coming out um, early, in a, actually in a couple of months. And so we would be happy to share that with this group and anything that you all can do to get, make sure the schools know about that funding availability would be, would be quite helpful. All right, so I think I'm all out of questions. Uh, so, so thank you for for the great presentation and for the the detailed answers uh, for all the commissioners, uh, and uh, appreciate everything that you guys are doing to help uh, drive forward uh, clean energy and and decarbonization in our communities. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. All right, uh, so with that, uh, our second item on the agenda is agenda item 24-0371, uh, which is a staff presentation uh, on single use on the single use plastics program updates. All right. Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you for having us here. Uh, my name is Shikha Gupta. I'm the Solid Waste Programs Division Manager in ESD. I'm here with uh, Bailey Hall and Environmental Innovations team that's online uh, who's helping us with this project. So um, basically, um, we're here today to present to you our ongoing work that we are doing on single-use plastic foodware. Um, this came up a few years ago as a study issue, but due to the pandemic and staff turnover, we, uh, it kind of took a stall for a little while, but we picked it up again last year. We've been working hard towards finding solutions for single-use foodware in the city of Sunnyvale. Um, so this presentation, basically what we are going to provide to you today is an update on what the current status of that project is. And um, we'll share with you the results of our survey that an EI team has helped us conduct in the city. 
as well as we have a pilot program that's going on throughout the city that we will be sharing information on. Um, so if you could go to the next slide. Just a quick uh, uh, background on why this is important. And I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. We all know why it's important. Uh, disposable plastic foodware has notable concerns we all know about. It's litter, it's difficult or almost impossible to recycle. We use it for a few seconds to a few minutes and discard it, adding to the amount of garbage that we produce on a daily basis. It, le it leaches harmful chemicals into foods and beverages. And of course, we all know microplastics are harmful too that it creates. So that's our focus is to work on uh, getting some parts of this resolved through what we find through um, our project here. Next slide. Um, mainly um, what we have currently been working on with environmental innovations is gathering data and identifying recommendations for Sunnyvale community. So, so far we have done a detailed survey with the restaurants and then also we have provided assistance in distributing mini grants to um, some restaurants that are specific to the needs of the restaurants that they have in this, uh, in this realm. Um, and the reusables pilot program that we have initiated um, is what uh, EI has really helped out with providing technical assistance and finding the right fits for these restaurants. Um, so at this point, I'll hand it over to Bailey. She'll walk you through the details of what that survey and the pilot is uh, looking like. Thank you. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, first, before we did the pilot, we wanted to know where we stood on things and we wanted to gather data with the restaurants. So we conducted a reusables readiness survey in August, September of last year. Next slide. So the main purpose of this survey was to see how an ordinance that would require reusable foodware for dine-in would affect Sunnyvale restaurants. That's the primary focus. Um, of course, we we gathered a lot of information, um, what their current uh, dine-in versus takeout situation was, what they were using for foodware, what their attitudes and um, barriers and benefits were about the foodware. Um, we asked about disposable foodware too, what they're using. Um, so we discussed both uh, reusable and single-use uh, foodware items. The sample size, so we initially uh, had a list of 901 from the county. Uh, that was every a list of all businesses with food or beverage licenses in Sunnyvale. Um, but Environmental Innovations actually filtered that down basically in half to 461 because they excluded schools, corporate cafeterias, and any prepackaged food vendors. So out of 461, we were able to obtain uh, survey responses from 93 facilities, which is a really excellent um, sample size, 20%. Our goal was around 15, 18% uh, and we achieved 20. So, woohoo. Um, and the delivery of the survey, uh, quite a bit was through EI staff out in the field and student interns through the Green Business Program. Um, in fact, that picture uh, is a couple of high school students, interns, talking with a pho restaurant owner in Sunnyvale. We also had a huge amount of help from the Peninsula Chinese Business Association. That was a tremendous help. Um, and then we did, the city sent out an email to all restaurants on that list 
um, that resulted in a response of five. <laughs> Next slide. So this survey gathered quite a bit of data. First, we wanted to uh, find out what type of food facilities we were talking to. And 61% of them are independently owned. Uh, so that usually means five or less of those locations total. Um, restaurants, uh, responders could select more than one answer here. So that's why the, the percentages could add up to more than 100%. Um, we had a nice range between you know, boba and coffee shops, fast food chains, um, franchises, grocery or supermarket store even. Um, we had a little bit of ice cream and dessert places. So pretty, pretty even mix. Um, and we asked what languages were primarily spoken by the owner. So most of it was English, um, but the second most common language spoken by owners was Chinese, hence why Peninsula uh, Chinese Business Association was so helpful. Not shown here, um, we're not going to show all of the survey questions in this PowerPoint because we'd be here a really long time, but we did also ask the top two languages spoken by staff and the top two there were English and Spanish. Next slide. So this was pretty interesting. Uh, primary dining experience responders could select more than one response. So 82% of facilities identified as uh, primarily to go, but there was quite a bit of overlap because 77% also identified as dine-in. So what that shows is most restaurants in Sunnyvale are a mix of dine-in and to go. And therefore, when we craft an ordinance, we'll need to um, keep that in mind that most restaurants have, have the capability and um, cater to both types of customers. Next slide. So we also wanted to, this slide is funny with the numbers. Um, so we also asked how much, how many of your customers typically dine in. So 28% of responders said that most of their customers dined in. Um, whereas 38% said half of their customers dine in. That's why the slide is funny because there's two numbers. There's no other pie graph like this. Um, and then a small amount, 12% said less than 10% dine in. The other pie graphs get easier. Next slide. Um, so good. This slide was promising to me. So we finally, you know, after we got into how many of your customers dine in versus take out, and we also did ask about seating uh, capacity, which is not featured here. We asked um, what type of foodware they they offer to their customers. So all or mostly reusables was 62%, which I find to be promising, more than half. Um, so that means 38% is we're using all or mostly disposables, and this is for dine-in customers. So this is not taking into account to-go orders. Next slide. So if a restaurant was not, we had, um, we had several kind of logic questions where, you know, if you answered yes, then you'd have an additional question. Whereas if you'd answered no, you wouldn't have to answer it. So for those that were currently not using reusables for dine-in, we asked them why. And their top five concerns are listed here. Number one was staff capacity for dishwashing. And number two was uh, simply physical space, either for the dishwasher and or storage of the dishes, which I did not know about. Um, 
there was also concerns about, you know, just changing operations uh, and then cost, cost in both buying reusables and operating or buying a dishwasher. Next slide. And again, if you are not currently using reusables, what would make you, uh, what would help you make the switch? So most responders, granted there's only 34% of the total that answered this question because we do have a majority, fortunately, that are using all or mostly reusables. But of the 34 that answered this, the number one, uh, number one assistance we could offer would be a grant or a rebate for purchasing dishes. Kind of makes sense if cost is a concern. Um, and then the number two answer coming in at a close second is a local ordinance that would force them to make this change. Next slide. So we, again, we really got into the, uh, got into details about what the, what these restaurants offer and how they serve different foods. So we wanted to ask about condiments because that's an area of reusable slash disposable foodware that can be overlooked. Um, so we, we got some good data here. 20% use a bulk dispenser. Um, 33% use small plastic container, um, containers that are disposable, whereas 33% use small washable dishes. Um, so the majority, well, it looks like about half here are using disposable and then half um, hopefully reusable if the bulk dispensers have a reusable cup. Next slide. And dishwashing capacity, this is of course very important. Um, so for those of you that don't know, a mechanized dishwasher is an automatic machine, whereas a three sink system is employee run. So it's going to be a lot more time consuming. So this, uh, this question was significant because it showed 55% of responders had um, a mechanized dishwasher, which is great, that's what we want but 42% just had a three sink system, which would be a barrier if they had to wash a large amount of reusable foodware. Next slide. So then we, uh, the survey had several sections. We moved on to asking them about their to-go um, to go orders. Next slide. So this is interesting. We asked them, what type of disposable foodware do you use? And this encompasses, you know, if any, what do you use for dine-in or to-go? Half of that is plastic, which kind of supports, um, supports the hypothesis that's already been proven, basically, that uh, most single-use disposable foodware is plastic. We did also... We did have uh, quite a bit, 28% of natural fiber-based compostable ware. So that's going to be um, like bamboo or sugarcane um, or a, even a strong paper blend. 9% is compostable plastic, otherwise known as bioplastic. And then 11% is aluminum, which is nice because that is recyclable. Next slide. And uh, if for those that were... Uh, that are using plastic or bioplastic food where we really wanted to ask, would you be willing, you know, what would make you switch to fiber-based compostable foodware? Um, so we asked, would you be willing to switch? Uh, majority said yes, or I'd consider it, which is promising, but there was, you know, 26% that said no, or I don't know. Next slide. 
So for those that are interested or at least willing to switch to fiber-based compostable foodware, um, I thought these these results were pretty interesting when in terms of why. So the biggest, the most common response was less environmental impact, um, which shows, you know, some awareness of the effect of plastic disposable foodware. Second most common response was if it were required, kind of like that ordinance answer that was given before. And then for those that were not willing to switch to fiber-based compostable foodware, um, the most common response was price, which honestly makes sense. Compost Fiber-based compostable ware is considerably more expensive than plastic uh, foodware on average. Um, and they also pointed out, um, some actually pointed out, which we saw in the pilot results, um, that compostable ware with really soupy, liquidy things can sometimes perform less well than plastic counterparts. Next slide. So we wanted to also ask about BYO because this is, you know, that's that's a grassroots way for customers to reduce waste on their own. Um, and we also wanted to ask about fees or discounts, and we got a really clear answer on that. Next slide. So do you or would you allow customers to bring their own clean, refillable cups and mugs? Most half of them said yes. Um, we got about a quarter that said not applicable, and then 23% that just flat out said no. Next slide. So we asked, um, we asked since some other cities or it's, it's in talks in kind of the world of disposables, reusables, instituting a fee for disposables or a discount for reusables, we wanted to ask how you feel about this. And this was a pretty clear response from the community. Um, only 2% of respondents said they would consider a fee for a disposable cup. 7% um, said they were interested, but still, that's only 2% that said a solid yes. Um, and then discounts were slightly more popular, but not, not by too much. Um, that is, I want to say that's 6% that says yes. Um, it was slightly more popular than the fees, but really not by much. We also asked this, so in the report, um, the summary of the survey, we also asked this about reusable containers, either for bringing them in to pack up your leftovers or ordering takeout on a for here dish, coming in and putting it in your own reusable container. So we asked about all of that, but we included the cups and mugs questions because the results were very, very similar. So um, businesses extremely against fees for disposables do not like that a little more amenable to discounts for reusables, even more so for containers than mugs, but not that much. It's the minority. Next slide. Uh, so we asked, you know, do you have any concerns about allowing customers to bring their own mugs? And again, we asked this about containers too. Most 70% said no, but there were, you know, 31% that said yes. And the top reasons were basically COVID or um, sanitation, which went into concerns from the health department, um, or, you know, the customer not knowing how clean the customers containers or mugs are. Next slide. And we asked, would you be interested in learning more? Or would you want to participate in a pilot? Because this is, you know, before we launched our pilot leading up to it. Um, and most respondents were interested in financial assistance to purchase reusable foodware, which we had already um, heard in another question. 
So that kind of confirmed uh, the previous answer. Uh, also financial assistance for um, infrastructure changes like dishwashers. Next slide. So after we wrapped up the pilot, uh, we were able to go into the actual foodware uh, pilot projects. And this is a picture I took of a food truck, Papusa Time, that switched to reusables. Um, that is the owner with his mom. Really great success story. Next slide. So we followed up with survey participants, especially uh, because we asked at the end, would you be interested in a pilot? And some said yes. So we followed up with them, also did further door-to-door -door outreach to over 60 restaurants, and we were able to secure 19 total participants. Uh, most of them we tested reusables with because that is the primary goal, but we did also want to uh, test fiber-based compostable wear um, for to-go orders. So 14 tried um, reusable foodware in some form or another. We catered it to each business and five tried uh, single-use compostable foodware. And that is a picture of ES Suites, which is actually a hotel um, that was doing really well for their dine-in breakfast and lunch service, but they only had disposables uh, for folks to bring food back to their rooms. So now they have disposable options for all of that. Another nice story. Next slide. So for the single-use compostable wear assistance, and again, um, all of this was fiber-based compostable wear. None of it was bioplastic or um, compostable plastic. So the five participants were DL Brazuca, Falafel Bite, Pad Thai Cuisine, Tacos Azteca, and K's Cafe. Um, and you can see the items that we provided, you know, bamboo, fiber-based utensils and containers. We verified usage with four out of the five restaurants. Um, so the one that to, uh, has not participated is Pad Thai Cuisine. I visited and spoke with the owner and he said they haven't used it yet um, because he's concerned about customer responses with the performance of the compostable wear, but he would really like to and asked me if it, you know, he could keep the items. And I said, yes. Uh, next slide. These are the 14 restaurants that had reusable assistance. I won't read them all out, but um, they're listed there. They're also on our city website. And these are a list of the items uh, that we provided. Most of them were ceramic plates, bowls, and mugs, but we also had quite a bit that were durable plastic. Um, if you can tell in that picture, uh, that is um, that is Lopez Taqueria, and they have durable plastic cups that they serve their agua fresca and horchata in, which was very successful. Um, and we verified usage with 13 out of the 14. Um, again, the one that wasn't participating, chicken tea, I did have a visit with them. Um, and they were, they said it wasn't going to work out, but they were willing to give us back their reusable water cups. So we have them on hand ready to give to another restaurant. Next slide. Uh, we did quite a bit of promotion. Hopefully you are all following us on social media. So you saw this. Um, we had a listing on our Sunnyvale City website, what we call a news post, where we maintained a list of all the participating um, restaurants. Throughout this, we also promoted Silicon Valley Reduces. They they aren't an uh, official part of the pilot, but it's a really excellent website maintained by two Sunnyvale residents that lists uh, restaurants that allow you to bring your own reusable 
containers or mugs. So every time we promoted this pilot, we always listed them. Um, and I spoke with them, got their blessing uh, because it went hand in hand so well. So lots of social media promotions too. Um, I was interviewed by a Homestead High School student and there was an article in their newspaper, which came out a couple weeks ago. That was pretty cool. Um, and in the upcoming Horizon newsletter that's going to come out in a couple weeks, we have a nice big feature there. Very exciting. Next slide. So the impact. Uh, Lopez Taqueria is one that we wanted to spotlight. You saw a picture earlier with the cups with the agua frescas and horchatas. So they opened last year and they were using um, a common, they had some reusables on hand, but they were also using quite a bit of disposables. So we were able to grant them a mini grant of $247. I should have mentioned that the average spend per participant was $240. Um, and we were able to switch out. So if you can see on the pictures and in the list, we swapped out their cups for durable plastic cups, swapped out their plates, even um, little, little ramekins for their salsa, guacamole, and chips. Um, if you can see in the bottom picture, the bottom right, that's actually a time when I went for lunch and that's the salsa and chips in a cute little bowl. Um, and the results are pretty fantastic. So EI uh, spoke with three participants to get the um, get the results from this pilot. So they estimate that with all the swaps we made, this is reducing 49,000 single-use disposable items each year. It's an annual cost savings of $1,623 and an annual waste reduction of 591 pounds. Um, I unfortunately couldn't include it in this slide because it had so much text, but the owner of Lopez Taqueria said that this pilot was a game changer. Using these reusables was a game changer. Uh, next slide. BBQ Chicken. Um, that's a great Korean uh, Korean barbecue chicken place um, that was using all disposable foodware for dine-in. So I was very excited about this because that's even more opportunity. We spent a little bit more on this one because there was so much opportunity. So we swapped out disposable um, plastic baskets, serving cups, um, forks, knives, spoons, with stainless steel baskets, glass carafes for shareable drinks, and then cutlery. This is projected to reduce uh, or avoid 78,900 single-use disposable items every year, save over $2,000 and 695 pounds of waste. Um, with Sonesta ES Suites, that was the hotel that I showed you where they had some reusables on hand, but the um, in-room options were all disposable. We provided them with mugs, plates, reusable plates, and bowls. And that's a projected um, reduction of 32,000 single-use disposable items with an annual cost savings of $2,800 and 1,350 pounds of annual waste reduction. Next slide. We also wanted to show this kind of benchmarking uh, because environmental innovations has already done this work in many other cities, including um, our neighbors, Cupertino and uh, San Mateo. San Mateo's featured here. So these are just two restaurants that they've previously worked with. You'll see on the left, two very simple changes, just plates and bowls, um, resulted in almost $5,000 of annual savings and 2,000 pounds of waste reduction per year. 
the example on the right in San Mateo, uh, they switched their cups, sauce cups, and utensils, and that saved $2,000, avoided 68,000 disposable items each year, um, and saved 811 pounds in terms of waste reduction. Next slide. So another component of this was reusable to go. Um, and I, I remember talking about this with the commission in, I want to say November, I, I want to say, um, but reusable to go is a kind of newer concept and, and a little more radical. So it's basically an app, some sort of app or program that customers download. They get their food or drink in, uh, in foodware that's usually disposable to go, but in these cases, it would be reusable, and then it would be on the customer to return those items at a later date. So I was excited that we were able to partner with Okapi Reusables. They specialize in mugs and beverage containers. Um, their flyer is there on the right. So they have stainless steel mugs for hot drinks and borosilicate uh, glass cups for cold, which actually works for hot too. So we were able to um, connect them with bamboo desserts and drinks. Uh, we set them up in late December, and since then there have been 23 users that visited the cafe and 65 cup borrows. Um, the owner's been great and really receptive uh, to the whole program. We also, um, we are partnered with Urvi, Urvi Reusables, which does to-go food containers, all aluminum. They have secured partnerships with those three restaurants in Sunnyvale. Uh, however, they are a brand new startup and they were a little more green than we thought they were when we first started the pilot. So they have still not been able to launch anything. We do not have any data. We are assured that they're supposed to launch this month, um, which I really hope so. And we still do have funding to support that, but no data available on that for now. Next slide. So uh, the pilot is going to conclude in late March. We officially started it in November. Um, so we have several months worth of data. So we are going to complete this pilot, make sure all our participants are happy. We're, we will then get official recommendations from environmental innovations. Uh, so they had some you know, data analysis and, and recommendations from their survey report. But after the pilot, they will compile a full report with recommendations for us on a future ordinance. Um, and then we are to present this to city council in April. And that should be my last slide. Thank you so much for your time. I know we threw a lot of numbers out at you, but I'm happy and excited to hear your questions. I have to turn on my own mic. Thank you for that great presentation. And I'm sure the commission will be eating this up. Uh, first up, we have uh, Commissioner Besser. Thank you very much. That was amazing. I'm really excited. Um, question I had for you is about Irvi. What is the process there? You're funding Irvi to provide them with the materials or you're funding if they sign up somebody, you're gonna give the restaurant the materials? So normally, um, to answer your question, shorthand, uh, this, the latter, the second one. So Urvi has these materials on hand and normally a participating restaurant 
has to pay them 25 cents per borrow, per customer borrow. Um, so we will be subsidizing that. The original plan was um, three full months. Uh, we still have some funding available. So I, I'm really eager for them to start. And I hope, you know, we can still do three months if they start in a reasonable time. Um, but it's, yes, it's basically supporting what the restaurants would be paying to be, um, to provide this service, to be part of Orbi and to use their reusables. Other commissioners? Commissioner McWana. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> great presentation. Thanks for doing the pilot. Um, I was just thinking that I think post-COVID, uh, every restaurant has become a to-go restaurant, for sure. Mm -hmm. And they've continued that sort of strategy because it kind of makes sense. Um, I order food through the food delivery apps, which mm -hmm. a lot of customers also use. And what I've noticed is every food delivery app has now started to include a checkbox for utensils and um, disposable stuff. I never check it. And it's never checked by default, which is great. Good. But the restaurant's still included uh, because they are, it's just, you know, um, second nature for them to just keep a bag ready when a food uh, is being picked up by by the drivers, et cetera. Have you spoken about this with uh, the restaurants during a survey? Because that's a habit that needs to change. Uh, you know, by default, they don't need to include it. Uh, and only if a customer requests it for whatever reason, uh, I would say that would be something that we should look into. Yes, I'm very passionate about this. So that checkbox is thanks to AB 1276, amazing law that says uh, disposable foodware items should only be handed out upon request and it, and um, delivery services are supposed to have that box. I've seen it too, and it should not be automatically checked. So yay, that law. Um, before this project started, some of our staff actually went out to restaurants just to do AB 1276 outreach. And we have some um, postcards and info sheets that are just based on this law. We also have it available on the city website too. So we, we were able to go out to restaurants and do outreach about this law um, and found that a surprising, it felt like the majority of restaurants still didn't know about this. And this was maybe um, a year-ish ago, year and a half ago. Um, I think, and feel free to jump in, mm -hmm. I would love to um, get enough staff support to get back out in the field and do this kind of outreach. Um, and who knows in the future if we have an ordinance or something, you know, something that will definitely require community outreach, it would make sense for us to combine that message because it is a problem. Um, and I also want the restaurants to understand this helps you too. You save money if you don't give out these materials that no one wants. Um, so we have done those out that outreach. We have had uh, those in-person conversations. Um, and I would really like to return to that because I agree it's a message that the restaurant community really needs to hear. And I think it can't be said enough. Yeah, no, great points, Bailey. Um, I think the main issue is um, the law has no enforcement teeth in it. It is very vague. It has fines, but if it's $25, it doesn't really matter to the restaurant at that point. And it, does the city have enough resources to go enforce that $25 fine? 
So definitely a resource issue on our end from staffing perspective. We could go, we do respond to complaints if we would get one. And then we would go do outreach with that restaurant and try and understand what their barriers are to change to what is requested of them. And then a lot of times it's just for them, it's customer service. They want to provide their customer with the best service ever, and that includes a packet of uh, disposable foodware. So it is it is something that we we can hone in on when we continue working through this project and get final uh, you know recommendations in place as how do we enforce what we make happen. Yeah, thank you. Uh, oh, I was going to say if I if if I could chime in, I have um, something to add. Um, uh, First of all, thanks for 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 having us. Um, I'm Lawrence, and I'm here with uh, Dharma Bertram. We're from Environmental Innovations. It's been a pleasure to work on this project, um, and thanks thanks for having us um, at 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 this meeting. Um, related to 1276, as a testament to the city's outreach, we were surprised at the level of awareness there was around 1276 in the city of Sunnyvale. We do this outreach um, all over the Bay Area, you know, related to foodware, and there was. Um, uh, there was a, a great amount of awareness around AB 1276 and the accessories uh, to go uh, law. In fact, when we walked into the survey, people thought that that's what we were there to talk about. <laughs> so, um, so that is a testament to the effectiveness of the outreach that the city has done. Um, you know, in terms of at least making people aware of that law. Again, you know, enforcement um, and, and follow up is you know an ongoing process. Uh, in terms of compliance, but there was a um, a great level of awareness in the city of Sunnyvale compared to some of the other um, cities and and um, you know areas that we've worked in. So, thank you, Lawrence. I didn't know about that. That's nice. Uh, which leads me to my follow up question, uh, my next question, which was, um, it seems to me, and maybe I'm reading too much into your pie charts, but it seems to me that most restaurants are willing to play along if there is an ordinance, which uh, sort of is my part of my second question, which is how much parallel do you guys draw between potentially what this could be as an ordinance versus the single-use plastic bags that, you know, mm -hmm. force the hand of grocery stores to say, thou shall bring your own bag, otherwise I'm going to charge you for a bag. Uh, because I feel like there is not as much of a BYO in this because... It might be cumbersome for people to bring not just a utensil, but also bring a cup, et cetera. But if the hand is forced to say you do not actually have disposables, then I think the restaurants might just be okay with that because they would then not have to pass on the cost to the customers, uh, even though it'd be a little bit cumbersome for the customers. But you know, I think residents would probably uh, play along as well as uh, the ordinance gets older. So that was something that I think... Uh, came to my mind. I don't know if this is something that you guys are preparing as a presentation to the city council in April. Yeah, when we get to the point that we will make recommendations, one thing to look at is a lot of these ordinances are around the country, around California, and other cities have tried them. For example, the cup charge, 25 cents. It, these, those cities are struggling with those ordinances because people don't care. It doesn't matter if there's a 25 cent charge. It's part, it's part of buying that coffee. So it's not as impactful as they thought it would be having a charge. And incentive programs are the other side of it, that, okay, if we give you an incentive, would you take it? So the different ordinances, different styles have been tried around the Valley even, like the, uh, in the Bay Area, even different cities have different ordinances. So we have to glean information from them to see what actually works. 
like the cup charge, it now, from what I'm hearing around the community, it's not the most effective way. That's not making an impact anymore. So does it really make a difference if we do do that for our community here? And it's not going to make a difference. Does it? Do we really want to go that direction? So that research, uh, Lawrence can chime in if he has other examples, but definitely learning from others is what's, what will help us understand what an ordinance, or do we need an ordinance even? Uh, and we go from there. Because there is state law that's happening a lot as well. We're going in that direction at the state level, like the back ban did, cities did it, and then the state ended up passing a law. But now even that back ban is not as effective so there is more legislation coming to change that bag ban from, okay, if not recyclable plastic anymore, no plastic at all. So there's ordinances, there's, I'm sorry, there's legislation happening on that end. Then there's other legislation focusing on single-use plastics only. So SB 54 will probably come back to you with some more information on that, but that's taking a really strong wind going through right now that's impacting how single-use plastics will be used in the state of California. So that's an EPR law that it's it's in um, you know rulemaking phase right now. And um, we're watching that closely to see how that will impact if we were to decide on an ordinance or some sort of um, you know, requirement on our customers. Will that make an impact? So we're learning from all of this and including our own community uh, a project that we have done here to guide us to a good ordinance or good um, you know, rule that might that will help achieve that goal. Because ultimately, are we really looking to just reduce single-use plastic or are we actually really looking to reduce waste? That's the two components that we have to consider as well because reducing waste means no disposables at all, it could be. And reducing single-use plastic could be that, okay, we allow for fiber-based. So there's a lot of um, things to consider as we are wor working through this. And um, so we're we're kind of watching everything at the state level too to see what they come up with because there's the CPR legislation is really going to guide what is actually being produced out there too. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the detailed explanation. I think you are on the right track to sort of take this from a very um, high-level perspective and then sort of drill down based on what the objectives are. My uh, suggestion would be that this would be at the level of uh, not having plastics as part of our food supply mm -hmm. because that should trump everything else. That, yeah. you know, we don't want plastics because it leads to all the harmful waste right. and all the microplastics. If that is the actual guiding principle, then everything else just becomes second nature. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but I, I think I leave it to the experts like you guys to decide on that. My my last question on the... On the uh, the same topic was, I'm encouraged to see at least that there's a pilot for the URV and the, the mm -hmm. rentals. I participated in the pilot program that Starbucks had okay. to sort of rent uh, a reusable cup and then bring it back. Okay. I found it very cumbersome. Mm -hmm. And so they scrapped it themselves and now they give you discounts to get your own sort of a tumbler right. to, to get coffee. And I think the reason is because at least for coffee, it's mm -hmm. a very uh, impulsive purchase. You're yeah. on the way and you're like, mm -hmm. I, I, I want a cup of joe. Mm -hmm. So you forget that there's a cup sitting at home that you're supposed to return and then you mm -hmm. sort of don't have that back and forth. I'm not sure how this is going to play out for restaurants, but it'll be good to sort of hear from you when you guys come back for an yeah. update. But the other one could be a combining that with the fiber-based uh, sort of mm -hmm. reusable and see if both these can be a great mm -hmm. uh, one-two punch. Yeah. Thank you for all the work you do. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Commissioner Napham. 
Thank you very much for a very detailed uh, presentation and lots of information. Uh, I had a couple of quick questions. One, um, about 21% on slide nine, sorry, about 21% of their restaurants use some sort of reusables and some sort of disposables. Was there a question asked why they used both? Um, like in Lopez Taqueria, it looked mm -hmm. like they were using mostly reusables and they had disposable cups. If they had the capability of using reusables, what was their answer for why they wouldn't use all reusables? Mm. Lawrence or Dharma, do you have any insight on that? It's a good question. Aren't they muted? Oh, I'm referring to our original survey because we didn't include mm -hmm. all, all the results uh, in the presentation. Um, but I could tell you from um, from our work in um, in uh, in some of the some so, you know in in, in Cupertino um, and neighboring San Mateo County, um, you know why they weren't using reusables um, for dine-in. Um, I think I think some of it was. Um, well, I can tell you that a lot of it switched during COVID. <laughs> so there was definitely concerns around uh, safety and sanitation. Um, you know, whether that, you know, was uh, was warranted, you know, is more of kind of a per perceived concern than a real concern. Um, I know that that was, you know, one of the biggest answers that we got when we did this similar work in Cupertino. Um, granted, that was sort of closer to, um, to, to, uh, to COVID uh, times. Um, you know, that was, that was kind of the main concern. Um, you know, other than that, um, you know, I think it's just sort of a, a, it's just kind of, you know, the way that they are set up operationally to do things. Um, so it's more like, um, um, you know, it's just their uh, kind of, it's just, it's just their history of, of, of operations. Um, and you know, it's kind of how, how they, how they start doing it, how they've always done things. Um, and you know, there was no reason or incentive, uh, to change. If I can add actually something that I've observed is a little bit of a cognitive dissonance. So we, we included the question specifically about condiments because you'll see a lot of restaurants that say, well, of course we use reusables. That makes sense. We have nice plates and silverware and and cups, it looks nice to um, our customers, but then when you need some ketchup or ranch or whatever, it, it'll be this weird disconnect where, oh, well, that's, yeah, that's in a plastic cup because that's, and, and there's not a great explanation for that, but I have observed that type of thing. I've seen it in different restaurants when I'm talking to the owners and they don't have a tangible explanation for it. It just kind of feels I wonder if it almost feels to them like it counts less or something. Um, just an observation I've made in talking to some restaurants one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, one example comes to mind. I had lunch at Rubio's Mexican Grill today. So they, if you're sitting there, they'll bring you food in a reusable, but then they have that salsa bar right. where you have the little plastic ramekin. Yes, yeah, right. So yeah. that that they because it's self-service at that point, they let you take it in plastic. So that's something that they have, I'm sure, resources to wash dishes, mm. but that's just for self-service purposes, probably. So they so, have that combination. Yeah. And so so we did ask the, the question um, and we we uh, pr uh, presented the findings here. I believe it is in slide 10. Um, you know, what's your thought? What's, what are the top concerns for switching 
to reusables, right? So another way to answer that question is, you know, what preventing you from switching to reusables? Why are you using disposables? Um, and we saw that, you know, if staff capacity for dishwashing, limited space to accommodate dishes or dishwashing, um, changing operations is just too difficult, which is sort of what I was trying to get at. Um, mm -hmm. Cost to buy reusables, which I think is more perceived than real. Um, cost to buy or lease dishwasher. So staff capacity for dishwashing and limited space and accommodation. Um, so, you know, cost and space are, you know, the limiting factors that people told us of, of, you know, what their concerns are switching to reusable. So I think that maybe gets at the question you're asking, which is, you know, why aren't people using reusables? Why are they just using the disposables? What's preventing them from making that switch? All right. Thank you very much. I, I think those 21% might be the easiest uh, restaurants to switch to mm -hmm. fully reusables, given the fact that they are familiar with using reusables already. So mm -hmm. that might be the easiest way to go. Mm -hmm. um, Last question was on the third-party reusables. When you, I'm not very familiar with it. So when you bring the container back, does the company wash it, or who's who's washing that utensil or that um, utensil or plate or whatever? And then how does it get reintroduced? Yeah. So definitely for Okapi reusables, I can very confidently answer that because I've worked with the co-founder and I've seen it in practice. And Orvi, I believe, should have the same um, model. So with Okapi, you, there's a QR code that you scan um, that says, I want my drink in a reusable cup, and you show the cashier as you're ordering. And they say, okay, great, I'll use one of my cups. Do that. When you bring it back, it can be dirty. So the onus to wash it and sanitize it is on the um, restaurant or cafe. Um, and once you return your cup, there's another, there's a QR code that you scan to say, I bring it back. Um, so it lets you rent out two cups at a time. Um, and I, I downloaded the app. So I know if it's more than two weeks, it says, Hey, you owe your cups. You need to do this. Um, but yes. Yeah, so you return your cup, you scan the QR code, the, the restaurant cleans and sanitizes it. Um, did you have another part of that question? Well, if the restaurant's doing all the work, why wouldn't the restaurant just buy the containers and give them out. I'm just curious if I, I didn't know if there was a, a service that these companies offered to clean them for the restaurant. So they didn't mm. have to deal with that. There's different models out there that do that too. They would collect the dirty cups and they'd take it to their central location where they will clean them and distribute it out again. So, so many different models have been tried by different startups. So for example, Okapi has a different model because others have failed. Because the one main reason why a central location doesn't work is because they can't go far from a certain area, right? So if they want to come to Sunnyvale, they don't have a lot of customers because it takes too long and it's not GHG emissions are still happening because now they're going 60 miles to just take it back to their um, central kitchen to clean these uh, utensils. So there's so many different models. These are just the two that we have been trying out. But yes, there's... Uh, it needs to be localized for it to work. And that's one option that we have been exploring with EI is how do we make it local enough that people will actually use it and they can drop it, not just at the Starbucks that's close to their house, but wherever they go, right? So those things have to be figured. It's it's a very new area of um, area that, that is being explored by different companies in different ways. And to address your question of why wouldn't I'll, I'll use a copy again, because I I've seen it happen. I've seen it in practice. Why wouldn't, you know, bamboo buy their own glass drinks 
Um, two reasons. Number one, those those cups are pretty pricey and it's far less expensive for the first, you know, several months for them to just be part of the Okapi network versus owning those cups. And probably more importantly, number two, if a cup is lost, the onus is on the customer to pay for it, not on the restaurant. So if I'm a customer that's going to bamboo, you know, I rent out a cup and I just for whatever reason, decide to never get it back, I'll be charged $15 and Bamboo won't, they won't be held accountable. Whereas if they, it were their cups, they would be out that money. So um, I think that's a big incentive, but certainly, you know, certainly them washing it, the cups or the containers themselves, that is a barrier as we saw. Um, I think the number one barrier to not using reusables for dine-in was um, staff capacity for washing. So I think that's part of the barriers of restaurants participating in something like this. Well, thank you very yeah, much I, for the detailed answers. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say as part of this pilot project, we did explore um, partnering with third-party services that do the dishwashing. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those um, uh, models that have uh, come up, you know, haven't been successful. They haven't been able to, to scale, um, uh, you know, because of you know the, the the level of participation and having you know enough restaurants within a location to justify having a washing facility, so it's been um, you know so some of those services have sprung up, but they haven't quite um, they don't quite have the capacity to service small businesses. A lot of those type of models are going like to corporate campuses and more centralized um, you know institutions, um, but we are still. You know, at least from environmental innovations and 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 the partners that we work with, um, including uh, the staff at Sunnyvale, you know, we 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 are interested in exploring those models and continually, um, you know, seeking out those types of uh, businesses that are, um, you know, exploring these different models, including including washables. And there are some potential opportunities uh, that we're in discussion with, of partnering with some other neighboring communities to actually set up a washing. Um, you know, a, a, a company, you know, a washing hub, basically, that can service multiple communities uh, around Santa Clara County. Sure, Christo. Thank you for the presentation. It's amazing. And I want it to be everywhere. And it's such an interesting, like, so much of this is just sociology and not science at all. Yeah. It's like, how do you get people to change their behaviors? Like, when I was in Germany in the before times, they would have like a beer festival on the weekends and you just, you paid five euros and you had a, a reusable glass and then you returned it. So how we get people to actually do that is, yes, I'm going to stop rambling now. Um, I do have some questions. Um, and we kind of just talked about this, but um, for the businesses that did the pilots i was curious like what were their prior situations so we sort of talked about it like the businesses who switched to uh compostable disposables those were all from plastic to the compostables and so for all the re re reusables were they coming from plastics it's or they come from disposables it seems like it was kind of probably a mix um, and then I was also curious, like their priors in terms of their pre-survey, like the things that they were most worried about, why they hadn't done it yet. Do do we have a sense of like what 
what were their main concerns and were those concerns borne out or or do we not know yet like if they if they were mostly worried about dishwashing capacity were they able to overcome it was it mm. as bad as they thought it would be was it like oh it's not so bad or what was the distribution there yeah uh so to address the first part with the um five restaurants that used compostable ware i uh, yes i it would all uh, replace plastic to go where, um, but I do recall on our spreadsheet seeing some of them, um, there was a note for a couple of them, couple of them saying, oh, they're already re using reusables for dine-in, so they wouldn't be a candidate there, but they would like to try out compostable wear for to-go orders. Um, so that, you know, that was the case for some. And then for the reusable participants, it was a mix. Um, most of them had some uh some reusables at play uh there were a few like bbq chicken where it was just all disposables for dine in i know which which was a little surprising but it it made me excited because there was so much opportunity and the owner um paul who i think was in one of our pictures was really open and said sure why not let's do it um so it was kind of a mix a mix of experiences and this pilot was great because we tailored it to every single business. You know, we we bought metal wire baskets for BBQ chicken because they serve, you know, their most popular menu menu item, chicken wings, in a basket. Whereas um, for Lopez Taqueria, those little small durable plastic bowls for their salsa would be needed. Whereas for most other places, they wouldn't have use for a tiny little bowl. So um, it was customized to each place, and then. Um, I'm so sorry. The second, the, like, part... what what were they worried about? Why hadn't they done oh, before? Right, right. And like, is there? Did you have a range of those? And and how bad was it? How mm -hmm. bad did they think it was? Or do we know yet? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if our EI team is able to right now see the re uh, survey results from our participants. That might take some time. EI. Um. Yeah, I think your I think your sort of um, I think your question is is trying to make the connection between the survey and the pilot, right? Um, so if we ask people a question in the survey and they said that you know they were concerned about washing and then they agreed to do the pilot, you know, were those concerns addressed? Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm not sure that we have enough data or that data could be could be um, correlated. Um, the folks that participated in the pilot um, were those that, you know, were were more willing. <laughs> they didn't have as much concerns, um, or at least those concerns weren't expressed. So I'm not sure we can make those um, conclusions, but we will be doing, you know, follow-up surveys and interviews with all the pilot participants to get a sense of their experience, um, you know, and how it went for them, um, you know, and and we'll ask that question, you know, concerns they had before and what their experiences, um, you know, post, you know, after the, after the pilot and after, you know, using the reusables, uh, you know, for a few months uh, or the compostables for that matter. Thanks. Yeah. I'm just curious. So I like... think I, yeah. So I think we, yeah. So I think we will be able to, um, um, you know, to have, to have some more of that information and more of those conclusions about, you know, what were their initial concerns before they participated in the pilot and were those addressed, but I don't think we have enough data or information to speak to that at this point. 
Yeah, it's a little weird because it's still in progress and you're still collecting the data. Um, but but it would be interesting to know, like, it, or I mean, like you said, they're all individual case studies and it seems like they were pretty tailored to a particular instance. So maybe those fears and concerns were allayed that way. But it, it would be interesting to see how, like, translatable it is to other um, businesses who, who weren't quite so eager to participate and and see if we can allay some of those fears um the second question yeah, might that's also... that's a great suggestion and uh, you know another way to do that as i'm you know <laughs> that yeah that's a great suggestion and i can see um you know bailey mentioned that we that there were you know at least one business that didn't use the reusables even though they agreed to participate and then once we bought them and delivered them they backed out <laughs> Um, and so that would be an interesting follow-up too, just to know, you know, initially they said they wanted to participate, but then they backed out and um, decided not to participate. Um, and it would be great to get some more follow-up information about, you know, what led them to that to that decision, you know, of, of non-participation. So I have another question, um, which you might not be able to answer if it's still in progress, but I'm one thing that I would be worried about is if they bought all these reusables, sometimes forks wander off and stuff or plates get broken. Like, is was there any worry about attrition or is it something that has been addressed or is it like to to what degree can you say? Like, because if, if you're buying all these durable things and then you have to keep buying more durable things, that's also not great overall from a waste perspective. Yeah, there, there's certainly concern about that. So I uh, personally had two conversations. One of those was with the reusable restaurant that dropped out um, that was concerned about customers either uh, taking the items, you know, the reusables with them or accidentally throwing them away. Um, so I, I had two conversations like that. You know, the one he the owner decided this is not for us we need to drop out and the other one um i offered to make them a sign to go because he was especially worried about customers accidentally throwing things away because they're used to throwing away plastic utensils so i offered to make them a laminated sign to go near their garbage with pictures of the reusable saying don't throw these away um i i didn't see them put it up but they were in that first visit, it was really early into the program and they weren't using reusables, but the second visit, my colleague went and they were using the reusables. So I don't know, but yes, that is a concern. It's a fascinating sociological experiment. You are um, right. I agree. Definitely. One, one last thing that I had. Um, so with the bring your own containers, um, was there any distinction made between like, because I've been bringing them to restaurants and taking my leftovers for like years and years. I'm always that weird guy. But w was there any distinction between like behind the counter and in front of the counter? Did did you make that distinction or was it left up to interpretation? Because I think I, I haven't mm -hmm. had any problems like just boxing up my leftovers at my table, but I have had some people balk at behind the counter. Like, can you just, it's it's right there. Can you just put it, it's, it's mm -hmm. clean, it looks clean, but they don't. And that's not how COVID spreads. But yeah, um, did, was there any distinction made there? That's a good question. So in our in our outreach, specifically the social media promo, we 
always mentioned the Silicon Valley Reduces website and, and emphasized, you know, people to go to it. We didn't provide explicit instruction, but we did say um, partly because the the you know, I do our social media and I don't want the messages to be like five paragraphs long. So it's partly purely just how we already have a lot of text and I don't want to make people fatigued with all of this instruction. Um, so we didn't provide explicit instructions like that. We did say in at least a couple, you know, go to their website, they list out restaurants that accept reusables and they provide step-by-step -step instructions for customers. So we kind of, you know, deferred to that. Um, but that is a good question. And in the survey, we ask the business owners, the restaurant owners, we split it into two separate categories of, do you allow customers bring, um, I think I mentioned, do yeah. you allow them to bring reusable containers for ordering takeout and then you putting it in their container? And do you allow them to use their own containers for their own leftovers? Well, I've also seen it before with them making the coffee in a disposable plastic cup and then pouring it into my mug, which is that's happened to me a couple. Yeah, that's happened to me a couple times. That's all progress. We got to relearn our muscle memory. Thank you so much. The other question we. Okay. Go ahead, Lawrence. I was just saying the other question we asked just, you know, so we asked, you know, would you allow and I think, um, well, Bailey put up the results. It was, you know, 50 or 60% said, you know, sure, we will, you know, we would allow that or we do allow it. We have allowed it. Um, but we also had this question, do people actually bring their own containers? And <laughs> most of the answers were no, hardly ever. Yeah. <laughs> no, some, you know, once in a while, we didn't, we, you know, we didn't include that in this presentation, but it is in the survey. Um, so we did ask those two questions and it was, you know, it, it, it was very, very, low level of, um, uh, you know, uh, a uh, uh, low level answer of, you know, level of participation in terms of BY, BYO. Thank you. I'll let somebody else talk. Vice Chair Beach. Thank you all so much for your great presentation. I also just want to applaud your team on the diversity of the restaurant participants and especially your outreach strategies that you employed. So like getting the survey data initially, you know, working with EI and also having student interns. I think that's just like a great sense of like, how do we have trusted messengers or, you know, it doesn't always have to be the city going out and doing things. So I really appreciate um the thought that went behind your outreach strategy. So thank you so much for that. I had a couple questions, but I'm just going to put it down to two. <laughs> so I wanted just to follow up on some of the, the um, kind of piggybacking on some other commissioners, just on the, the thought of like the, around the fees and, you know, the pushback we received from restaurants. And I was just wondering, um, do we know any of the, and maybe I missed it, but was there any more insight as to why the businesses were against the the fees? Um, I'm guessing the fees were going to get passed on to the customers, like we've said, like the five cents or potentially like the five cents ban. So I was just wondering if like they're worried about like in my accounting, it's tax time. Like, how do I give that money back to the city or, you mm. know, how, what's that process? Cause you know, part of me is also thinking I like carrots more than sticks, but mm -hmm. um, you know, something that I could see is those fees could potentially go back to city to be able to invest in these types of programs, to be able to do more pilots or support mm. more, um, you know, businesses if those fees were collected and distributed local for these projects. So just wanted to kind of see your thoughts on if there's any more insights there. 
So the restaurants or the cities that have done a fee, they have let the restaurants keep that money. Mm. So if there is a 25 cent charge that they are charging the customer, they get to keep that. So that was an incentive for the restaurant to in, to implement that fee that they get that money. They don't really care about it, honestly, because mm -hmm. there's more work to that than they actually would uh, not charging a fee and just giving them a mm -hmm. disposable. So mm -hmm. it's all about, again, resource allocation. Would they rather spend money on some asking that question or time on asking that question? Do you want a cup or do you want to, to pay? They would rather move. You've seen Starbucks, how quickly they take orders. So that's one less question for them to ask. And they don't really care if they get $10 in a day or not for giving out, you know, for charging somebody. Mm -hmm. So cities have tried that and um, and hasn't really worked in their favor from what I understand. But then again, uh, that might be just one city that has gone through that. Mm -hmm. If we were to take it, honestly, it would be a very resource intensive to get that money from the restaurants, which is not gonna be a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you set that up? How would you bring that money back into the city? And honestly, I don't know if it'll be enough to fund any of our programs because it will be a small charge. We can't charge a huge amount. The highest I've seen so far is 25 cents. And Lawrence, jump in if you know any more of anybody charging more than that. But 25 cents is not a big number. Mm -hmm. And it'll be very resource intensive on the city to actually collect that from the restaurant separately. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, I've not heard of any city that has gone that path. They have let the custom, the restaurants actually keep that money. Um, we didn't specifically ask that question in the survey. Um, you know, why do you not like a fee? Um, but I think just like Shika said, it's, it's a big administrative burden. And I know that that is a very big deal to um, restaurants, you know, business owners. And another thing to consider, um, I attended a conference about plastic reduction, reduction and zero waste. And there was a, you know, nonprofit speaker there dedicated to, you know, plas keep plastic pollution down and out of our oceans. And she was actually talking about how charging a fee for disposable anything is um, unjust to certain members of the population. You know, you're punishing them. Uh, for resources they don't have. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective, talking about how it's it's not equitable. Um, and then to Shika's point, it's, it wouldn't be that much funding. It would be a huge pain for us to get the funding. Um, and the response right there alone, you know, 2% saying yes is a, is a pretty loud message. Okay, thank you. And my last question is going to be, you know, on some of the slides where you were highlighting the successes of the different businesses, you know, there were some great successes thus far, like how much reduction of waste, how much maybe money saved. And I was just wondering if there was any like unintended consequences from any of the stuff that we've done. So I just didn't see not, maybe there's not, but I was just wondering, um, you know, if there was higher labor or higher like oh. what is their water intensity how much did it increase like for someone maybe a restaurant who was just only doing kind of plastic and now they're washing mm. and things like that so is there any of that like unintended consequences data or things that we didn't highlight i'm not trying to focus on the negatives no, no. i'm just wondering if there's any of that no, that's data great available. Question. there's yeah. actually a lot of data behind that and i know uh, lawrence might have some of that from other cities that have that uh, cities are you know in general 
nonprofits have looked at that data on how much water usage is increased because now you're washing everything and how does is that even return of investment if we take away plastics versus now you have higher water use higher electricity use so i know something there's data like hand there. washing versus like if you're yeah. using machine like you know exactly. if you hand wash something yeah it could use way more water than yeah. something high efficiency or equipment time. or in staff time stuff yeah yeah staff time is the biggest thing mm -hmm. yeah that automatic dishwashers, even automatic dishwashers require a person to put them in the dishwasher. Mm -hmm. So there's always staff time. Mm -hmm. But Lawrence, maybe you can speak to that, that there is that data out mm -hmm. there, right? Of water usage and everything else like that. Yeah, I mean, we, we so we don't have that data yet for these pilots, but I think that, you know, again, it, you know, will be part of our follow-up, right? To understand what the impacts were, what the, what the experience was of the restaurants participating in this project. Um, you know, any concerns, things that, that came up. Um, uh, and certainly around, you know, labor and, and resource use. Um, there is some data around that. I mean, most of the data that I could speak to is really, um, uh, it, it's sort of like, you know, localized water use versus um, material water use in terms of the supply chain. So, you know, when we look at, you know, life cycle analysis of water use for products versus water use for, you know, washing reusables, um, you know, overall impact, it uses far less water to wash reusables than to purchase um, disposables consistently over time. Um, but again, that's more at a global scale, not necessarily at, you know, a local level. I mean, obviously if you are washing dishes that you weren't washing before, you're using water that you weren't using before, um, you know, how much and is it a significant impact? I don't, I, I, I can't really speak to that. Um, but I do come across quite a bit of, you know, this sort of life cycle analysis assessment of like, you know, overall resource impact being reduced by using reusables um, in terms of water, energy, um, you know, material use, et cetera. Thank you. Commissioner Makwana. Thank you. Just a comment uh, on the earlier point about the rentals. So the two startups that you highlighted, I wonder if one way to scale with them could be to have more cities participate in the South Bay area where I think the cumbersome part, as I mentioned, is for you to return the reusables back to the place that you actually got it in the first place because you may not go to the restaurant again yeah. because you typically sort of frequent a restaurant, I don't know, once every few weeks or months. So if there's a collection point where you could sort of mix and match all these utensils and the restaurants just get replenished by these startups, that might be a great way to start this whole sort of engine, so to speak. Uh, I don't know if they're trying that, but perhaps something to consider uh, because that would actually allow all customers from all restaurants be part of the same pool and they just get these uh, uh, these used uh, sort of uh, reusables from customers and they just keep giving it back to the restaurants after they clean it up. So I just wanted to sort of comment that. The question I had was um, the 93 restaurants that currently participate in this pilot, did you guys actually uh, prepare any kind of a decal or a sign to celebrate that they are part of this program so other customers who are going to the restaurants can see that this uh, restaurant has actually changed their habit and their uh, notion about using reusables so that more people can actually talk, uh, ask about it? Yeah, uh, I just I wanted to clarify that 93 restaurants took the survey and then 19 participated in the pilot. Um, I wish we had 93 participants. Uh, we so we did 
think about that. We did not have any sort of decal or sign in person, um, but we did, you know, part of our uh, kind of outreach to these restaurants was telling them we're going to really promote you on social media, which is what we did. Um, so Facebook and Instagram, we always, if the account, um, if the business had an account, we always tagged them, um, featuring them on the website, the city website, uh, garners a lot of traffic. Um, and then the Horizon newsletter, you know, every Sunnyvale resident will will get that. Um, so our outreach was more, was digital, um, but we didn't think about doing in-person signage. We just didn't get there. You know, the mayor of Sunnyvale is actually pretty uh, vocal about his restaurant choices on Facebook. <laughs> so maybe he could uh, lend you a little bit of uh, publicity. Sure. I think you were looking for slide 27 there. Mm. All right. Mm -hmm. So I'm not seeing any more hands from commissioners. So I, I have a few questions as well. Mm -hmm. um, so first off, fantastic presentation, but even more so, fantastic program. I, I think it is really outstanding uh, that you guys have gone and, and done a pilot like this to really get a sense of what is going to work for businesses in the community and then uh, uh, you know have that as input into uh, the policymaking process. So, so that's a very thoughtful approach and one that's really uh, thinking about what's going to be effective in reducing waste and what's going to be good for our local businesses. So, so just hats off to you for, for this outstanding project. Thank you. Um, so I, I love it. Um, have some specific questions. Yeah. Um, all right. So first off uh, on, on slide 10, um, one of the concerns um, for uh, the restaurant owners cited, yeah, for switching to reusable foodware um, was limited space to accommodate storage. And I was curious, um, did they think of reusables as taking up more space than all the disposable stuff that they're giving out? So this, this surprised me because I actually heard about this, um, from several and they, they specifically mentioned this storage for airing out, basically for airing out the, um, reusables to dry. So I, you know, I don't work in a restaurant. I don't know how um, much of an issue that is, but uh, what I've heard, that's most, mostly what they were referring to. Um, Lawrence or Dharma, chime in if you have heard anything different. No, I, that, that, that's, that's, that's my understanding as well. Um, there are some examples like a, the ice cream shop that we worked with, for example, of, you know, where these dishes would be, would be placed, you know, would they be on the counter? Would they be stacked, um, you know, for easy access? Um, so there was some, you know, some concern about where things would actually live or where they would, you know, where they would be stored. But a lot of it was about drying. Um, you know, I think a lot of these concerns too are, um, you know, a lot of it's like perceived concerns, <laughs> you know, um, so that's why it'd be really interesting, you know, when we do the follow-up, you know, was that a concern about storage? And in reality, once you got all the, you know, all the reusable dishware, were you able to find place to put it in storage? You know, was that actually an issue, even though it was a perceived issue? Um, but yes, I think I, I do uh, agree with you, Bailey, that drying was, was um, you know, a big concern about space. 
Yeah. Yeah. Just to add, I'd uh, say ditto to what Lawrence said. Um, and then I think also just kind of repeating what he said earlier with operational concerns, I think um, when they really think about it, they might end up being able to find some of that space and uh, that might be tethered a little bit to um, feeling an attachment to the way they've always done things. Um, but I think that's part of why this outreach work can be so great and special because you're able to kind of work with them and give examples of what it could look like. Um, so yeah, just want to jump off that a little bit. Thank you. All right, uh, so next question. Uh, can we go to slide 13, please? Uh, so uh, one of the things that was mentioned was, uh, you know, dishwashing capacity and, and specifically uh, those restaurants with a, a three sink system. Um, so am I correct in understanding that uh, within the scope of the pilot uh, that there was, if, if memory serves that there, there are services that will like send out a truck to wash dishes like at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, and am I correct in understanding that there was not any kind of like a, a mobile dishwashing service that was uh, in scope of the pilot? Lawrence, do you know, or Dharma, do you know if that was part of the 2.3% uh, where they had neither a three sink system or a mechanized dishwasher? Or perhaps that 2% was all disposables? Um, I was asking if, so if the pilot uh, had included uh, any kind of a service like that in its scope. Oh, oh, uh, the sorry. So the, go ahead, Lawrence. Oh, I was going to say, um, no, it, it didn't. We we did um, as we were seeking third party service providers to uh, to service Sunnyvale as part of the pilot. We did reach out to um, some of these, you know, third party dishwashing facilities. But like I said, there were there were none that were operational um, or had the capacity to basically come and service Sunnyvale. And what we found was that the the companies that we knew about actually, you know, had shifted their business model. So, um, so there really is not a functioning, you know, third party mobile dishwashing business that is available to service small businesses. Uh, there are some set up that are serving more institutions, corporate campuses, uh, K to 12 schools, but not really for small business communities in downtown areas. So we were not able to secure one of those businesses as part of these pilots. They're kind of few and far between at this point. Got it. Thank you. Uh, let's see next. Um, let's see, sorry, I didn't notice slide number, but it, it was the one that was uh, BYO, uh, where where everybody was hating on the fees and discounts. <laughs> so there should uh, be two down. pie charts on it. Yeah. yeah. There 17. we go. Seventeen. Uh, or not. Um, oh, sorry. I just saw two charts and jumped on it. That's these are not 20. the pie charts you were looking for. All right. <laughs> there we go. I was wrong. Thank you. Uh, so I was curious, you know, th this, you know, revolved around, you know, like a, a bring your own and, and fees and discounts. Um, was there any kind of a question that was asked in terms of like a deposit uh, and then having something mm -hmm. that, that the customer would then bring back? It sounds like, you know, Okapi has sort of a similar model where if you don't return it, you, you get the big charge. Uh, but is uh, like our deposits anything that we asked about? And is there any different perception in the business community with them? Hmm. We did not ask about a deposit, only fees or discounts. Um, 
I guess a deposit would specifically apply to reusables to go, right? Yeah. Okay. So most of these, um, we didn't, the survey didn't really get into the reusables to go aspect. It was really covering um, standard services for dine-in and to-go. Um, Lawrence or Dharma, anything to add there? Maybe in your experience in other cities, their responses to... Yeah. Uh, yeah, we did ask a question. One of the final questions of our survey was, and I'm trying to dig up the survey right now, would you be interested in participating uh, you know, in a pilot project? Mm -hmm. And we asked a few different things. And one of them was, you know, would you be interested in participating in a third party, you know, reusable service program? Uh, that's not exactly, doesn't exactly get at, you know, would you participate in a discount program? But there's third party I mean, a, a deposit program, but that's essentially what these third-party, you know, mm. reusable borrow programs are. So that's sort of the closest we got um, to asking that question. And, you know, there's only a handful of businesses. Um, I think it was maybe, you know, 12 or 15% that said they would be interested in at least learning more about those types of services. Thank you. Uh, all right. Uh, so let's see. On slides uh, 28 and 29, uh, we had uh, our, our fantastic feedback from the pilot uh, businesses. Uh, and that those included uh, some stats about uh, cost savings. And uh, first, I had a clarifying question. So my assumption was that those annual cost savings were savings to the business. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And these those stats were collected by uh, EI, but yes, it would be savings to the business. Okay. Uh, so then, uh, my my next question is: uh, Have we estimated uh, what the cost savings are to the city? So if we're charging them a certain amount for their their trash service and our, we're disposing mm -hmm. of less stuff for them, um, you know, have we estimated uh, you know what the the city's return on those investments would be? That's a good. That's a great point. Yes, I think we can look at that and see how it reduces their um garbage uh, amounts and then save them some money yeah yeah that's something that's an ex a very exciting question i think initially that sounded difficult but i guess if we did maybe some waste audits at participating places pre and post saw what their you know what their uh garbage bin contents actually look like then yeah that would be doable and it'd maybe... be hard to blow up to the whole city though <laughs> <laughs> and maybe the data that's here, like six to ninety-five pounds on a waste reduction, that might help us determine that too. Yeah, yeah. that's what I was thinking about. Was exactly that because hmm. I was seeing can, can we, in terms of weights. Yeah, yeah. Can we uh, extrapolate that? That um, yeah, the, the the pounds reduction, you know, right. to to a cost. And just to clarify, the annual cost savings is based on disposable foodware that they are no longer that they no longer have to purchase. So that's what that savings refers to. Makes sense. Thank you. All right. Um, so I, I think I, I heard the answer to my what was going to be my next question, which was I, I was curious about if we had a sense of, you know, how, how many tons a year we might uh, be uh, saving in terms of disposal if this was scaled citywide. So, yeah, we can definitely get an answer to that. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Um, so. Next up, um, yeah, got two more questions. Uh, first was, um, you know, 
like with this model, what I'm seeing is that uh, it seems like with with fairly small grants, we're able to, you know, at least for these businesses, get them fully switched over. Um, so if I think about, you know, scaling this up, um, you know, do we have any idea of, you know, how much it would cost to roll something like this out for every single restaurant in the city? That seems like that could pair very nicely with an ordinance that says, and you shall stop you know, using the disposables. <laughs> Yeah, no, great point. That's something that I'm hoping EI can help us with and project what kind of cost that will be. Like now we have at least an idea on if we give out $200 to a restaurant, what part of their restaurant uh, service that they can switch. That doesn't mean that we have switched everything in that restaurant, right? So there's multiple items that we might need to uh, look at. Okay, if switching everything is not 250, it's 2,500. Mm. So that kind of data, I yeah. think, can be extrapolated, Lawrence, right? And then we can get a sense of what Yeah, absolutely. That... I mean, we we estimate that on average, um, you know, it'll cost $500 to do a complete switch of a restaurant to reusable. Uh, that's on average, right? Some restaurants might be 700, some might be 300, depends what they're using, how far along, but to make a complete switch, not a partial switch, um, on average, we estimate about $500. Um, and so if we extrapolate from our results, you know, with our with our, our survey size, um, you know, when we said that 38% of the businesses would need to make significant changes to have reusables for dine-in, that um, if we extrapolate that out, that's, you know, 162 food facilities that would need significant help or would need to make significant changes to meet any kind of reusables for dine-in ordinance. So, you know, 162 food facilities times Five hundred dollars. I don't know. You know, I mean, we could start looking at those numbers to see. You know, if we were to help every single food facility that needs to make the change, 81, 81, what would that look like? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, when when I hear that, it sounds like you know the city could make a, a relatively small investment. There would it, it would be helping our our local businesses and also helping us achieve our zero waste goals. So this sounds sounds like a win win and, and something to, to to go after and highlight for council. And it's not just the reusables though. You have to think about the infrastructure they'll need for dishwashing. So if they mm -hmm. don't have that, that's a higher cost than just yeah. switching the reusables. So if yeah. they don't have any um, you know dishwasher or a three compartment sink then that's a significant cost because then the plumbing and equipment, everything will add up. So the, that part needs to be analyzed as well, not yeah. just the cost of this. So start with the low hanging fruit, point taken. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is there a plan for any kind of a, a part two pilot based on uh, you know what you've learned uh, from the first pilot and also you know ideas for taking things further? Hmm. We, it's a good question. We don't have plans right now for a part two pilot. Um, I think once we wrap this up, we're very eager to, you know, get our official recommendations from EI and compile those and present them to council. Um, I think we are open to what council suggests or would maybe like to see. So it's, I don't want to say it's off the table, but what do you think? Part of what we have thought about is now we have really deep dived into restaurants and what their usage are. What we haven't considered is what are the barriers on the customer's end? Mm. So talking to the residents is another part of it that we may want to go on a path for, just so we understand that question of what is the sociology behind them not bringing their cup? 
when they're going to a coffee shop or just having it in their car available? Like what happens and what can we do to make that happen? So that that we have discussed is doing a custom survey for residents since now we have a lot, a, a very good idea on what our businesses are looking at. Mm -hmm. But um, maybe that will help us guide a, a better decision on which direction we take. Maybe we need to only, we don't need to require anything of our residents and businesses. We just need to do a very big outreach campaign on reusables. That's something we may want to think about is we just uh, make this a huge campaign. The reusables is a thing because people don't think about it uh, when they're leaving home, their house to go to even a restaurant. So I'm glad somebody is doing that. They're taking their container when they're going to a restaurant, right? So if that became a norm, then do we even need an ordinance after that? So there's multiple ideas to think about that we need to still explore, but... Um, then we'll have to also think about if we were to do another pilot, what would that entail? Like, are we just thinking of involving other restaurants in it? Or are we thinking of other ideas and other, other um, types of programs that are out there? Like, I think EIA has done a good job of exploring what is out there and bringing that to Sunnyvale. But like Lawrence mentioned before, not everybody will come to Sunnyvale with their ideas because it's not the market for them. So there's still a lot of consideration to make decisions right now, honestly. Makes sense. <laughs> All right, last question. Uh, so on slide 32, you mentioned uh, that you're gonna be presenting to council in April. Uh, I was curious, uh, is that, you know, what is what is that gonna look like? Is that a study session? Uh, are there actual recommendations being made? Uh, what, what can you preview for us? Um, at this point, it will be recommendations that EI will be providing and then whatever we, as you know, we'll talk to our leadership to come up with a plan on what we want to present to council. Um, it could just be at this point options and results from our work that we have done so far. So an extended version of what we're doing today with you um, and come back later with solid, more like more data, more work done to come up with an actual um, suggestion and recommendation from staff. Or if we feel like the survey, the results that we, our recommendations we get from EI are not enough, then we may want to push that council meeting out, honestly, just so we have a better plan in place. So I know it's a very hefty goal for us to go to council in April, <laughs> um, but that's what we have promised so far. So we want to be able to say something to council to say this project is here right now. So still work in progress, honestly. Makes sense. Thank you very much for your time. I, I really uh, enjoyed the presentation and, and think you guys are, are onto something pretty cool here. So thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for your time. And yes, ladies. thank you so much. This was great discussion. We really enjoyed it too. And uh, points well taken. There are parts that I think we need to do a little bit more work on. And I was hoping to get that from everybody here. So thank you for, for your participation. Absolutely. All right. So with that, it is time for our consent calendar. Uh, so we have two items on the uh, consent calendar this evening. Uh, first up is uh, 24-0372, uh, which is to... Uh, approve the joint study session minutes uh, from our joint session on November 30th with the BPAC planning 
emissions as well as, of course, sustainability. Uh, I guess it being a consent calendar, we can do those all in one go. Uh, um, and then uh, the other item on the consent calendar is 24-0373 uh, uh, to approve the Sustainability Commission meeting minutes uh, from Janu our January 16th meeting. Uh, and I, I will note there uh, that uh, there was already uh, an item in there uh, noted for correction, uh, which is the uh, approval of the uh, meeting minutes from the November meeting uh, had something in there that said like, enter motion here. Uh, the, that, that's gonna be corrected with what the actual motion was. Um, so uh, if any, sorry, I need to ask for public comment. Uh, all right, so, um, I will call on, sorry, let me find my place in the script. Uh, so if uh, members of the public wish to address the Sustainability Commission on the consent calendar, uh, please submit a speaker card to Ms. Raby. Uh, use the raise hand feature now or dial star nine on a telephone to indicate that you wish to speak. I will call on members of the public participating in person first, and then Ms. Raby will ask remote participants to unmute their microphone when it's their turn to address the commission. Speakers will have three minutes to speak, and for members who are in person, we have a time. We will have a timer displayed for you. Uh, do we have any speaker cards on the consent calendar? No, we do not. Do we have any remote participants wishing to speak on the consent calendar? No, we do not. All right. So uh, over to the commission. Uh, do we have anybody who wishes to speak to the consent calendar or to make a motion, Commissioner Nabam? I'll make a motion to accept the consent calendar as is. Thank you. Uh, and do I have a second? Commissioner Pistone. I'll second that. Do you wish to speak to your motion? <laughs> All right. Vice Chair Veach. I do have a clarifying question uh, because we're accepting the consent calendar with both of the two items. I have to abstain from the second one because I wasn't here. So I just wanted to clarify my process. <laughs> we, should, we can break it up into two that's, separate that's motions if that's cleaner. We can break it up if All that's right. possible. Sorry. Commissioner Nabhan, would you uh, accept a friendly amendment to have your motion be uh, only on uh, item 24-0372? Yes, that works. Sorry, I didn't unmute you. Yes, that works for me. <laughs> right. uh, and Commissioner Pistone, are you still, you're still seconding it. Thank you. All right. So on the motion to uh, uh, approve the uh uh, item uh, 24-0372 to approve the meeting minutes from the uh, joint study session on November 30th with BPAC and planning. Uh, Ms. Raby, may we please have a roll call vote? Yes. So, Chair Coons, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Pistone? Yes. Vice Chair Veach? I, I was, yes. I'm unmuting everybody. <laughs> um, Commissioner Wickham is absent. So, Commissioner Makwana? Yes. Commissioner Besser? Yes. And Commissioner Naphan? Yes. By a majority, the 
motion passes. Thank you. All right. Uh, so then uh, the next item on the agenda is uh, item 24-0373 to approve the Sustainability Commission meeting minutes uh, as corrected. Uh, and uh, I'm ready for a motion from the commission. Commissioner Navan. I'll make a motion to accept the uh, 24-0373 as is. Uh, thank you. And do I have a second? I will second. Thank you. All right, so I'm going to assume that you still do not wish to speak to your motion. Correct. It was well written. <laughs> All right. Uh, with that, uh, Ms. Raby, may we please have a roll call vote? Yes. So for approval of the consent calendar item 24-0373 with the noted uh, motion amendment by Chair Coons, Commissioner Nabhan, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Besser? Can you? Yes, give them a second. It has to turn red. I got to kill somebody else here. It has to go yeah. red. Yes. Thank you. Vice Chair Beach? Abstain. Commissioner Makwana? Yes. Chair Coons? Yes. Commissioner Wickham is absent and Commissioner Pistone. Yes. Thank you. By majority, the motion passes. Thank you. All right. So, I'm going to scroll down a bit here. All right, next we have uh, consideration of potential study issues. Uh, have any uh, potential study issues been uh, submitted, Ms. Raby? No, there have not been. Thank you. Uh, to the commission, as a reminder, there is a study issue form that commissioners can complete and submit to staff anytime during the year. Uh, and then, of course, commissioners uh, review, sponsor, and rank study issues. Uh, the next item on the agenda is... Commissioner comments. A reminder to my colleagues to use the raise hand button to indicate that they wish to speak. Vice Chair Veach. Thank you, Chair Coons. I just wanted to say thank you all to who attended the recent Sustainability Speaker Series event um, just a week or two ago on microplastics. And I'm excited to hear from staff just kind of like what our numbers were, how many total attendees. I know we had kind of like a record-breaking number of registrations and, and fairly good attendees also. But thanks to the commissioners who helped promote it and also attended. So um, it was really a good session. Um, I was one of the uh, the hosts for it, but if you haven't listened into it, um, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, our speaker was really great and um, provided great insight onto this um, microplastics micro problem. So uh, feel free to take a look at that. Thank you. Any other commissioners? Commissioner Pistone. I guess I'll say that we also had another sustainability speaker series. Uh, I think it was two weeks before that at the end of January. They are both available on the YouTube. We can uh, go and watch it whenever. 
but it was about atmospheric rivers and drought, which I think has proved to, yes, be a timely topic um, for the weather that we're having now and how it's still related to climate change. So I think both of the topics were really good and both of the presenters were really good. So I'm, I'm happy with it so far. Yeah. Any other commissioners? All right, uh, so I have a few uh, as well. Um, so uh, first off, uh, I did want to, uh, uh, on a personal note, thank uh, Silicon Valley Clean Energy. Uh, I, I have tried a couple of the programs. Uh, uh, specifically, I am on the e-elect rate uh, and have uh, used the uh, Future Fit Homes program, uh, in my case, about a year ago uh, to replace, uh, to electrify our furnace and water heater, uh, as well as pre-wiring for a future electric dryer and induction cooktop. Uh, and the program was fantastic. So uh, yeah, if if you're thinking about electrifying, uh, I'd urge you to check those out. Uh, next up, uh, Ms. Raby uh, sent out an item to the commission uh, with respect to uh, progress on the active transportation plan that was drawn from, I think it was the council study session on study issues back on January the date escapes me. Uh, if if you haven't watched it, um, there was quite an in-depth uh, presentation uh, from Public Works uh, about the the tangible progress that they've made on the active transportation plan so far. Uh, so I think that uh, if you haven't looked at it, it's, it's well worth viewing just to have a, a, a clear sense of what the state of play is uh, uh, on that important initiative for getting down our vehicle miles traveled. Uh, last up, um, I just wanted to report back to the commission that uh, I, in my capacity as chair, uh, did give public comment about our study issues, um, both at the uh, evening study session where the, the council was weighing potential study issues, and then also at the uh, budget workshop uh, last week. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I'm, I'm sure that, uh, you know, we, we, it did come up earlier, uh, you know, our, our, uh, uh, study issue with uh, respect to uh, uh, artificial turf uh, did end up at the, the top of the list for environmental services. And the uh, landscaping one, I believe, was uh, right after that. Uh, what's that? Yeah, well, they didn't defer or drop it, um, as is their prerogative. Um, uh, and then uh, I'm curious if in uh, staff comments, we'll hear about uh, uh, when they're going to determine where the line is uh, for, for study issues. Uh, so that's uh, all my commissioner comments. And uh, now, uh, uh, Ms. Raby, uh, do you have any non-agenda items or staff comments? Yes, I have staff comments. I don't know. Was that the one you switched? Yeah. Sorry, there was a mic problem. <laughs> so I'm going to start off with past event updates. So um, as mentioned, we had two sustainability speaker series events. The first one was on January 24th, and the title was Drought Atmospheric Rivers and Floods. We had a, about 150 registrants, and we had 53 attendees. And the next one was on February 7th, and it was called Microplastics Macro Problems. And this one, we did have a record-breaking to an, around 250 registrants, and we did have about 92 at the height of um, that webinar attend. 
And for upcoming events, we have our Drive Electric online webinar on um, in a couple of days, actually. It's on February 22nd, and it is on financial incentives, and it is going to be from 7 to 8.30 p.m. And then we have um, Electrify Your Life series at the Sunnyvale Public Library. This is an in-person event with Bayron, and it's going to be on March 6th from 7 to 8 p.m. And it is in the library's program room. On March 16th, we have our Ride and Drive event. This is going to be at the Sunnyvale Community Center from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then on April 17th, we have another sustainability speaker series event called Make Every Drop Count Gray Water Reuse. This is going to be our one of our first in-person um, events in, a, I don't know, in a while. Yeah, really long time. So um, it's going to be at our Sunnyvale Theater, and um, more information will be coming out to you all. Um, and then next up is our Earth Day event. So on Saturday, April 20th, we're going to be hosting our Earth Day event here at the Sunnyvale Civic Center. It's going to be from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. We're trying to make it a very large event this year to um, showcase our brand new building and all the landscaping um, that is being designed around the around the area. So then up next is on April 23rd, we have a Bosca webinar on, and it's called Increase Habitat in Gardens. It's going to be from 6 to 8 p.m. And then our last upcoming event for now is April 25th, and it's going to be our Mercury Thermometer Exchange. And it's at the Sunnyvale Senior Center from 9.30 a.m. To, to noon. So you would just come bring your old mercury thermometer and you get a digital thermometer in exchange. And so our then next up is just our information about our next meeting in March. So it's going to be on a Monday again. We're back to Mondays. So Monday, March 18th, it will be here in the Bay Conference Room at City Hall starting at 7 p.m. as usual. And then I wanted to highlight a few of the uh, TC MAC or tentative council meeting agenda calendar items. So on March 19th, there's mark your calendars because we are going to be um, host, having a study session with council on game plan 2028. And then March 26th, there is a council item called discuss potential state and re regional grants and funding sources to fund shuttle program and direct city manager to apply for potential grants. And then in April, uh, April 9th, there are two council items. They're both special order of the days. Um, one is on Earth Month, and then the other one is recognition of green businesses in Sunnyvale. And that is all for my updates. And then I think Madeline did want to comment on um, the above the line, below the line. Um, so we make recommendations for, or the city manager includes in the recommended budget, what will be above the line, below the line. So when council receives the, rec the recommended budgets usually released in early May, we send out an email to the commission as soon as it's released with that um, page numbers of all the sections that we we're highlighting for you to review. 
Um, and in that would be the budget proposal for study issues. And so that's, that you'll know at that point in time, what's above the line and below the line. We all find out at that time, what's above the line and below the line. And then council um, reviews the recommended budget in May. I believe it's the 23rd or 5th May is uh, council's um, budget workshop. And then they'll adopt the budget sometime in June. Once that budget is adopted, we have a delineation of what um, study issues are funded. So it's not until end of the fiscal year. Yes. Thank you. Yes. All right. So that concludes staff comments. Yes. Thank you. All right, uh, so now let's go ahead and have a look at our uh, annual work plan. Uh, Ms. Raby, would you mind sharing the plan? Okay, let me zoom in a bit. Okay, so as I mentioned, we are going to have our next meeting on March 18th, and we have two items slated for that meeting. I will be giving you all a presentation um, on the 2022 to greenhouse gas inventory for Sunnyvale. And then we have updates from youth groups that Vice Chair Veach will be leading. And the only minor change I made, um, Chair Coons noted that um, the game plan 2020 adoption public hearing was um, in the wrong area. So I just moved it back up to uh, additional items yet to be scheduled. And that is it. Or annual work plan. Thank you. Oh. Vice Chair Veach. Yes, thank you. I just had a quick question for the agenda for March, or actually a request, mm -hmm. if it's possible, if um, the staff president or the sorry, commissioner presentation can go first on the agenda since I'll be working with outside groups just to kind of be as respectful for their time as possible. So that would be my request and appreciate. Yeah. I see the head nodding <laughs> that we might be able to accommodate that. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. We usually have presentations, external presentations go first. So I will make sure that it is top of the list on our agenda. All right, thank you. Uh, so with that, uh, we've reached the end of our agenda. Uh, the meeting is adjourned at 10.17 p.m., and I want to thank everyone for their active participation and great questions in tonight's meeting. <laughs>